Hi, this is Steve Resnick, and this is Game Changers with Vicki Abelson. It is, and you did that wonderful, Steve. So, all right, so, ah, and the dogs have decided that now would be a really good time to talk to them. We're having a day, so we just, so we, we are in, what, what do you call this, Steve? I call this an 18-room West Coast Rock and Roll Museum. If we have to fight with the dogs the whole show. I can go shut them up and be back in five seconds. If okay, you want go ahead. Go, okay. go shut up the dogs. I'll dog. be right back. We're going to let Steve shut up the dogs. And and Pete, come on. In the meantime, come talk. This is Pete George, hey, the rock and roll comedian. Look it. And what's crazy is my uncle was in this house from Cleveland many, many years ago when he was a rep for A&M Records. And it's crazy because he remembered all this stuff, the records in the basement and everything. So. This place is insane. Yeah. But what we found out is, well, we've got screaming dogs. We have internet that goes in and out. We have internet that doesn't work at all downstairs, which is where all the, the records are and the CDs. Okay. But as they say, that's rock and roll. That's rock and roll. And it's showbiz. And uh, thanks, uh, uh, Pete. Well, we're going to talk more to Pete George. Thank you so much for doing this. So we're, we're, this is like we're on the fly. We're, you're, we're, Let me first say that, oh, no. that the, the dogs... <laughs> Have been punished. No! Today, it's their birthday! Today's their second birthday. There's three little cute Pomeranians that weigh three pounds. They haven't barked for the entire two hours we've been talking, and now we start the show, and they're very disappointed they're not in the show because there's been a lot of shows, there's been a lot of music with dogs' names in it, you know, walking my cat named Dog, and you know, uh, doing the dog. Just and a walk. They, they in said, the why shouldn't we be here? But, but, but they're. We've actually, Pete and I have done shows where we've had dogs. Christina and I did a couple shows where we had dogs that were featured, mm -hmm. but unfortunately, they, there's very it's very difficult to have conversation when dogs are running around because they're too cute. We've had babies. We've had ba we've had babies. Interesting. Bert Young, mm -hmm. we had his grandchild. His oh, grandson. How cool is that? So 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 yeah. So I was just saying. So we've had some challenges. We were gonna shoot this downstairs. Downstairs. And we can always do a part two. So we can. Well, That's great. When we get along down there one day. Okay. So what we figured we would do is. We're going to save the beat the clock, which Steve doesn't want me to call it that, but we're going to save Steve can find pretty much any 45 in his collection now. It's called Stump Steve. Stump Oh, I like that even better. I didn't know it's called Stump Steve. That's even better. Much better than beat the clock. So tell people what you're able to, tell people about the collection of 45s that you have downstairs. Okay. I was lucky enough to find a home that has underground basements, and that's very rare in Southern California because you can't have earthquakes because you know why? Earthquakes. But I'm lucky enough to have, I'm the third owner of this house. The first owner was a contractor, and mm -hmm. he illegally built the three 40-foot underground basements. He made them all legal later on, so now, really? now it's fine. It's all legal. Uh-huh. But um, when I found this house, I knew this was the house to have because we're talking about 45s that are made out of vinyl that could melt. And it gets to be 105. Whatever it is in Los Angeles, the San Fernando Valley is 10 degrees more. And out here, it's five more degrees. So when you talk about a day of 90 in L.A., it's 105 here. But underground, it's never more than 68. And the records are just fine. And they is have that been true? for many years. Yeah. Wow. Because the underground has no windows. Right. So it's like a little cave. It is a little cave. And we'll show it to you in part two next time. But it's Well, uh, well I think we're gonna, what we're going to try and do, the goal is that we're going to sit and chat with Steve now. And at the end of the show, we're gonna we're gonna cross everything, and then we're gonna try going downstairs to happens. show you uh, the um, what is it what is the, the library the, the library library and then we'll also show you the forty five room and we'll see if we're able to do stump Steve, and in okay. uh, you have every forty five right. 
from 1955 right. to the present right. that has ever charted. Is that correct? Correct. How many 45s the, is that well, let me, approximately? Let me, let me do it this way. Yeah. Okay. There's a, there's a, there's a quarter of a million songs here in the house, but there's, <laughs> there's been about 38,000 songs that have charted in Billboard. Okay. But you're talking about the 45 singles, they have a B-side. Right. And then later on, the CDs usually have four cuts on it. Oh. Now, three of them may not have charted, but you're right. talking about how much music there is. But there's been 38,000 songs that have charted in Billboard since November 17th of 1955, wow. when Billboard created the first Top 100. So it, that, that collection is the same age as I am. It's, a, it's, it's seven, 19 days younger than I am. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> the collection's actually a little older, though, because okay. the 45 RPM single, mm -hmm. which most of you know what the 45 is, but for those of you who don't, it's the little one, little vinyl with the big hole. And those were singles that kids bought from the early days of rock and roll in the mid-50s all the way to when CDs were created in the early 80s and really all the way up to 88 or 89. Wait, between CDs and Vine and, and, the, and the 45s, we had cassettes. We had cassette singles for a while. We had cassettes. cassettes and cassette singles for a while. But the vinyl didn't go away until CDs you came You know, about. you're right. We didn't really have singles on cassettes. I didn't buy any singles on cassettes. You're Very right. few people did. Yeah, you're right. But Tower Records carried them for a short period of time. They tried it. It was another one of those things that didn't work. I didn't even know they had CD singles, actually. They had CD singles as well. Were they successful? They were a little more successful than the cassette single, but it never caught on big time. Right, right. So when did 45s kind of lose their steam? They lost their steam almost the same time as AM radio went out and FM came in. Uh, AM radio lost out in the in the late seventies. Right. Singles, 40, 45s and vinyl lost out between eighty two and eighty nine, give or take, mm -hmm. um, because there was a transition where people were still buying vinyl because they didn't know what CDs yet were. Right. CDs came into fruition around eighty two. I, I got my first the first CD I ever got was a Bobby Darren Greatest Hits CD. I listened to it and couldn't believe it. How cool it was to have a CD, right? You, you know, even though many of my friends didn't, they, many of my friends said, "Oh God, this is horrible." But you know, right. vinyl's not going to go away, is it? You know, we, you know. But I liked both. I liked I liked CDs when they came in. I liked have, still having the vinyl. Uh, so there were there were CD albums, mm -hmm. greatest hits albums and regular right. albums, regular you know, 82, 83, 84, 85, um, until about uh, the late 80s mm -hmm. when CDs really took over and vinyl disappeared. Right. And Although it's making a comeback now. It's making a comeback, and it never went away completely because mm -hmm. of two words. You know what those two words would be? Say. Jukeboxes. Jukebox. There's still, give or Are take, five million no. vinyl jukeboxes. And so, so they, they still make uh, 45s for the jukeboxes, but not you can't get them for every record. There are five million jukeboxes? Well, someone told me that five or six years ago. Maybe it's less now. but That's you know, crazy. Yeah. When was the last time you saw a jukebox, Pete? Two minutes ago. Ah, here. <laughs> Two of them. Yes, there you go. Because, because <laughs> no, one, well, they're both vinyl, you're right. One's 78, one's at 45, but they're, oh, both, they're both vinyl, 78, right. wow. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, so take us back. What started this obsession with rock and roll, with, with memorabilia? Well, I mean, this house is, tell us some of the things that are here, and then we'll go back to why you started okay. collecting. Okay, well, let's go the other way. Okay. Let me tell a little story, and then I'll tell you what it developed into. Great. Okay. I was a kid in the 50s. Okay. And I would sit in the back. It was me and my sister. Mm -hmm. I'd be about eight, and she'd be about four, four. She was four years younger than me. And we used to be in the back seat of my parents' 51 Ford. Mm -hmm. And my parents 
we'd go on a lot of drives, mm-hmm. and they would play the radio. Where 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 did you live? I lived in Chicago back then. Okay. And I'm of the Jewish religion. The reason I say that is because going back 40 years before I was born, mm-hmm. 1910, 1915, 1920, about 80 Jewish families on the north side of Chicago bought these summer cottages way up in Michigan, in the western side of Michigan, uh, above Benton Harbor, St. Joe, uh, Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, but on the, uh, on the lake. And they weren't rich people. Mm-hmm. They were middle class. Mm-hmm. And they bought these summer cottages. And way back, way before I was born, all these families would, from June 20th to Labor Day, would be up there at, uh, enjoying See, the beach. See, we did it in the Catskill Mountains in there New you York. Go. There yeah. You go. Mm-hmm. And we had a private beach there. So I started going there when, you know, in the 50s when mm-hmm. I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a special time because rock and roll was brand new. Mm-hmm. But, but all those drives we would take, I'd be in the back seat of my parents' car mm-hmm. listening to Tony Bennett, Eddie Fisher, Perry Como, Doris Day, Patty Page, you know, mm-hmm. whoever, Eddie Fisher. And I thought the music was okay, that they liked, you know, it was all right, Vic Damone, whoever, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I never really loved hardly any of it. It was just okay. Okay. Then all of a sudden, rock and roll starts. And it yeah. seemed like, it may not have been, but it seemed like overnight it went from the music I just said. Right. To Elvis and Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers and Roy Orbison mm-hmm. and Fats Domino, et cetera, et cetera. Uh-huh. It seemed like it was overnight. Okay. And I just all of a sudden thought, how wonderful would it be to sit in the back seat of this car and hear that great, great new music mm-hmm. by Chuck Berry, you mm-hmm. know? So once in a while, I would ask my parents, when I knew there would be a station, an AM station we'd be going and we'd be driving, I said, Mom and Dad, can you put on 1260? I know they're, they're playing the new music, and I would just pray that it wouldn't be Little Richard or Chuck Berry, because they would turn it off in a minute. Oh. I'd be praying for a Johnny Mathis, uh-huh. which was okay with me. You okay. Know? And they would turn it on, sure enough, it would pretty quickly there'd be a Jerry Lee Lewis song and Fats Domino song. And would they, they really turn it off? Oh, yeah. They, they did not hysterical. like rock and roll. And, that's they didn't forbid me to listen to it, but they mm-hmm. would rather I rather have that I didn't. Okay, I loved this new sound of music. I just thought it was the greatest thing ever, and it was disappointing back then because mm-hmm. Chicago had no only they had one top forty station, mm-hmm. but it was a daytimer. And for anybody who doesn't know what a daytimer radio station is, there's not too many of them anymore, but there's still a few. They were on the dial, but they interfered with another station also on that same dial. Uh-huh. One of them had to go off at night. Uh-huh. So this station in Chicago, WJJD, it was it was called Protecting. They had to protect a station also on the same 1260 in Salt Lake City, believe it or not, that far away. Wow. They'd interfere at night. Because uh-huh. for anybody who listens to AM radio, which we don't listen to as much anymore as we used to, AM radio in the daytime just covers a city, mm-hmm. covers a market. But at nighttime, it goes big, long distances. Wow, I never knew that. And by the way, while we're talking about Chicago... Um, our, our great friend and sponsor, Rick Smokey, from Quick Impressions in Chicago, mm-hmm. Addison, Illinois, right, right outside right, of Chicago, right. is watching. I saw, hey, Rick, and uh, if you ever need anything printed or anything for your ramp, which we're going to talk about, um, mm-hmm. Rick's your man. And for any of you out there who need anything printed, Rick Smokey, Quick Impressions in Chicago, you tell them that I sent you, they can take good care of you anyway. You don't mm-hmm. need me. But they'll take better care of you. And also, I have to give a shout-out to my hairdresser, Nicole Venables, of the Ruby Begonia <laughs> Salon. I don't have my props with me today, but she's the best. She's in Studio City, and uh, she's got great products. She's got Fuff Fuff Hairspray. Oh, <laughs> how could you not love that? Exactly. Um, so, so, anyway, so, okay. so, so, so now, you were around for, like, the birth of rock and roll, basically. I was. Yeah. 
And I didn't think it was going to last very long. Because really? there were there were priests and rabbis and reverends on the newscasts mm-hmm. at night on NBC and CBS and ABC telling the world, adults, do not worry. This thing mm-hmm. called rock and roll, it's going to be gone soon. We're going to make sure it goes away. It's bad right. for your children, and we'll make huh. it go away. <laughs> My dad was almost a rabbi. He was... School. Almost a rabbi. He was schooled to be a rabbi, but World War II came along. Mm-hmm. He went, went to the Navy for four years, mm-hmm. fighting the war. Mm-hmm. And when he came back, he just changed his mind. He was still religious, but he didn't want to be a rabbi anymore. Uh-huh. Okay, And it helped me out because he went to a company and worked there in Chicago for 15 mm-hmm. years called Revere Camera Company, where yeah. they made reel-to-reel tape recorders, which he'd bring home every weekend. And so I would tape the Dick Clark show and different ways of listening to music, or I'd just put my, my, my microphone to the radio and... and tape songs, because mm-hmm. again, rock and roll was brand new, and I just loved it. So it was good that he worked at, their, at the station. But another, so, so I was very concerned as a nine-year-old kid that rock and roll was not going to be around long. Okay. And then, to make it worse, my parents made me take piano lessons. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do that. But you could have been Jerry Lee Lewis. I know, but for some reason, as much as I loved rock and roll, I never had any intention of playing music. I wanted, just liked knowing about it, listening to it. Collecting it. Okay, let's stop for a second. Did you? What did you want to be when you grew up? Then did you have? Did you want to be in did music? I never really thought I knew anybody that would help me get into music, so I never really thought that I really could, and had no clue what I could ever do when I grew you, up. So you didn't have a dream. I, didn't I want wanted to be a policeman, lawyer, fireman. I, I you no, had no goal. No goal. No goal. Okay. And, I, and I was a very poor student. I barely made it from one year to the next. I was a C minus student. Okay. I hated to study. Uh, I just wanted. To, all I cared about was music and sports. I played a lot of sports, but I just never thought I, I was, the only sport I was good at, I played a lot of sports, I was pretty good in football, I played mm-hmm. semi-pro. Wow. Um, but I'm only 5'9", and I'm not sure I ever could have played pro football. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that probably would be another question. That there was a possibility I could have played football, but nevertheless, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my parents made me take piano lessons. Mm-hmm. And I had to go across the alley behind our house in Chicago, and Lionel was giving me piano lessons. So the first thing he does, I'm nine years old, he says, Steve, I'm going to teach you an octave. There's eight notes and four bars. And these eight notes, every song there's ever been and every song there will ever be, will be played, will be created from these eight notes. Love that. Now, I'm thinking in the back of my mind for days and days and days and going to sleep at night scared to death that rock and roll is going to go away for one reason, the rabbis and the priests and the reverends. Now I'm looking at him, I got a second reason. I look at Lionel and I say, Lionel, every song there's ever been and every song there'll ever be? He says, yeah. And there's only eight notes? Aren't they going to run out of possibilities pretty soon? <laughs> Another reason why rock and roll is not going to last very long. So I was very nervous about that. All right. A nervous kid <laughs> yeah. in the rock and roll. Okay, so I was the kid in school who knew more about music than anybody else. And then I would tell the kids what radio station to listen to and all that. Okay, wait. What's the first? What's the first record you buy? What's the first forty-five you buy? Or seventy? What did you buy first? Forty-fives. Forty-fives. The first one I think I ever bought was Sixteen Tons by Tennessee Ernie Ford. Sixteen wow. tons. Okay. But the worst thing was that yeah. about a year later, there were two instrumentals. One was uh, Lisbon Antigua by Nelson Riddle. Okay. Frank Sinatra's guy. Uh huh. You calling other- that rock and roll? No, no. Okay. but for some reason, I don't know why, I loved rock and roll and I didn't like that, but I, for some reason I just loved these two songs. I guess okay. I, I bought them. I don't remember why I would have done it. And the other one was Poor People of Paris. 
know but that no, one was Nelson Riddle and one was another famous guy you'd know okay, okay. and why I didn't buy rock and roll I don't know so they were both instrumentals mm -hmm. and my cousin who was a year older who loved to tease me came to our house that night for dinner and he says oh your mom his aunt your mom says you bought two records today. what'd you buy and I told him he said well I bought a record today too and I said what'd you buy he said I, I brought keep I bought keep a knocking by little Richard and he says, how much did you pay for your singles? I said, 96 cents plus four cents tax for each one. <laughs> he said, so did I, and I got music on mine. I'm not uh, sorry, I'm sorry. I, I, said, I said it wrong, I said it wrong. So did I, and I got singing on mine. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh I got singing on mine, he says, okay. He says, you paid the same as me, and all you got was two musicals. <laughs> we didn't know they were called instrumentals. Right, that's he funny. He says, you, didn't get, you, didn't, you paid the same as me, and you didn't even get singing. <laughs> And I never bought an instrumental the rest of my life. Oh. Pretty much. Wipeout. You didn't buy Wipeout? Come on. Well, I might have gotten it, but I didn't yeah. buy it. Okay. I stole it. <laughs> but anyway, so that was the early days. I, I was worried that rock and roll was going to go away. Now, my same cousin moves to Kalamazoo, Michigan. Okay. He's my best friend all my life. Mm -hmm. Best man at my wedding. Okay. We go to Michigan. He comes from Kalamazoo. Uh-huh. He's one of the 70 families. Okay. But he comes from Kalamazoo. I come from Chicago. But most of the families came from Chicago. Uh-huh. And it was, those times were the best times of my life. It was like um, Huckleberry Finn and uh, Tom Sawyer and those guys. Uh -huh. Every day we'd get up and we felt like it. We'd walk through the little forests around Michigan. Mm -hmm. um, we would see friends of ours. Then we would go to the beach at noon till five. We had our own private beach, which was more beautiful than the beaches mm. of Cancun, Hawaii. Wow. They, they're just unbelievable. I'm, I'm having a hard time with this. The, the most beautiful beaches the reason are they were, outside of... I see these I see these shows on the Travel Channel mm -hmm. where they have the ten greatest beaches, right. and they're gorgeous in Cancun and places like that, right. you know, in Acapulco. But when you walk into the water and turn around, what do you see? High rises and freeways or, or roads going around the islands. When we go down to our beach in Michigan and we turn around, it's the most gorgeous trees all the way to Chicago. Mm -hmm. You don't. There's no high rises. There's no roads, mm -hmm. no parking lots. Mm -hmm. It's just beautiful sand dune beaches. And the water is just unbelievable. You go, you go up to your waist and it's over your head and then you swim out and get to the next sandbar and you're back up at your waist again. You can go out like two blocks and, you know, and the water's clean and beautiful. Anyway, that's my, my, my great memories. But the memories were better at night because at night, what I was saying about AM radio, mm -hmm. and back then everything was on AM radio. Mm -hmm. At night, the radio stations all over the country would go long distances. Mm -hmm. In the daytime, you couldn't get anything. You barely, we, once in a while, we got a signal from Chicago, but that was it. We couldn't get Detroit anything. But at night, we got Milwaukee, Kansas City, uh, uh, Buffalo, Cleveland, Cincinnati, all these stations and all the stations in between, like Canton and Grand Rapids and Flint. We, we would just turn the dial one notch and we picked up stations after station after station. We just wanted to hear rock and roll. And, all, and back then, there were very few rock and roll stations in the cities we lived in. Right. But if you picked up all these different markets, you could pick up all these stations. And we just wanted to hear new records. Right. By Johnny Tillotson, by Brian Hyland, you know, by by You're before Del my Shannon. time. You're before my time. I know Del mm -hmm. Shannon, yeah. Right. Okay. You know, whoever they were, the ever the right. were, we wanted to hear the new music. Right. And one night, I don't know if you remember the song, it was the third record I ever bought, was by the Dell Vikings. They were the first black and white mixed rock and roll group. Mm -hmm. They were from Canada. And they had a song called Whispering Bell. They had a song called Come Go With Me. And I can't sing, but if I could, you would know it. Dum dooby dum dooby, come and go with me. It was um, played you know that song, in many yeah. movies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and it was on the Mercury label, I think, or Dot label, and it went to number four. Mm -hmm. It's a big, big record. It was only beat out by a Pat Boone record and an Elvis record and whatever. Um, and it was a huge record. Mm -hmm. Okay. That was in the January type month of mm -hmm. 57. Now, summer of 57, rock and roll is only a year and a quarter old. And my cousin and I are turning the dial, we're turning the dial, and we hear their follow up. This jockey said, Well, you, you love, come go with me? Well, you're going to love this one. Whispering Bells, their new record. I don't know okay. that one either. That one you might not even know if I played for you. Okay. It didn't do quite as well. It, okay. peaked, it peaked at, I think, 15 or 12 or somewhere mm -hmm. in the billboard. Barely made it almost top 10. But it wasn't quite. Mm -hmm. And but, but, I loved it, but I loved it as much as, as I did the uh, Come Go With Me. Mm -hmm. So my cousin and I heard it, and we both said, Oh, that's great. That is great. You know, A couple nights later, we hear it again for a second time. But then summer's over. It's back to school. It's Labor Day. He goes back to Kalamazoo. I back to, go back to Chicago. Four months later, we have a Thanksgiving dinner. Families come in. He comes in. We're sitting at the Thanksgiving dinner. He says, by the way, Steve, four months ago, remember we were playing radio and we heard uh, Whispering Bells by the Dell Vikings? We loved it. Did you ever hear it again? I said, no, I came back to Chicago, and now we have two top 40 stations. Neither one played it. I watched Dick Clark and American Bandstand every day. He hasn't played it. He says, yeah, we have two stations in Kalamazoo now, and no, they don't play it. And I swear to God, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I cried myself to sleep that night. Oh, you thought rock and roll was saying, dying. No, oh. no. I, I, I still was probably worried about that. Yeah. But no, my worry that night was, as long as I live, I will never hear that song again. And how many other great songs will I never hear because radio doesn't play them? Wow. Radio doesn't play, they only play 15, 18 records. In fact, then they paid more than, you know, later on it got Your to Your nightmare later. then is mm. still the nightmare today. No. I used to go to the record stores every week. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't, didn't have enough money to buy records hardly ever, but I'd pick up the surveys from the radio stations. Back then they had paper surveys every week showing you the top 20, top 30, top 40, whatever, every station uh -huh. was different. Sometimes they had a top 40, but they wouldn't play all 40. Right. But they show them all. Right. And I'd say, I don't know that, 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 oh, that went to three, oh great, you know, whatever, okay? But I realized in the record stores, mm -hmm. in the early eight or 10 years, first eight or 10 years of rock and roll, mm -hmm. They only played what they were called the currents, mm -hmm. the songs that were out. So if you bought Don't Be Cruel by Elvis, mm -hmm. as big an artist as Elvis was, mm -hmm. if you bought Don't Be Cruel with the other side being Hound Dog, the record would be on the air for, on the radio for about 12 weeks, 14 weeks, and then his next record would come out and it would be gone, and records didn't last more than 12 weeks back then anyway. Right. Once that record fell off the charts and fell off the radio, the, radios, the record stores would order another 20 or 30 of those, but when that sold out, they wouldn't keep buying them once people didn't request them anymore. And a year later, you could not buy that record. The record stores no longer, they weren't available. RCA did not make that available. It was about 15 years later when they started selling oldies but goodies. Right. For those first 15 years, if you didn't buy it when it was new, you couldn't buy it. Wow. And I thought as a nine-year-old, I'd never be able to buy one. I, I knew that the record stores didn't carry them. Well, I didn't know that it would change years later that you could buy an oldie but goodie. You know, I didn't know. So this is the beginning of the thinking of the, the rock and roll Hall yeah. of Fame library. Well, it was, it, it, but I it, didn't know that I'd ever right. get anywhere with but it. But you kind of manifested your dream, is what you did. Well, I used to say to my fellow kids in school, mm -hmm. someday when I'm old and rich, mm -hmm. I'm going to have every song that there possibly is to collect. <laughs> did you really say those words? I did. And of that, of that old and rich, I got half going on right now. <laughs> I won't tell you which half. Okay. So, I wanted to collect. Now. Yeah. Three and a half, three years later, uh -huh. we moved from Chicago to California mm -hmm. because my mom had asthma so bad they only gave her a year to live and she was only in her young 30s. Oh, wow. 
I used to wake up in the middle of the night, go to the bathroom when I was 9, 10, 11 years old, and she'd be in the kitchen trying to breathe mm. with the machines and things. Mm. It was real bad. My uncle was a doctor, and he, he used to come over once or twice a week, give her penicillin shots. Mm. She had it really bad. And we read an article in Life magazine about how Tahunga, California, suburb of LA, one mile from us right here, Tahunga, California was the third best place in the world for asthmatics. Wait, okay, I went to school in Tucson. I thought Arizona was the best place. Well, you didn't let me finish my okay. story. Okay. Tahunga was the third best place. Oh, okay. The first best place was somewhere in South America, oh. and the second best place in the world was someplace just outside of Tucson. Right. Where you're from. Mm -hmm. And the third best place, my, now, mm -hmm. my dad just started working for, I was working for Revere Camera Company. They were bought by 3M, Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing out of Minneapolis. And so he thought, oh, this is great, because Revere was only Chicago. The real, the real tape recorder, but Minnesota Mining was the whole world. Mm -hmm. It's got the tape, everything. You know, they made all the tape, everything. So he said, if I just stay here for a year, and if the new people, new owners like me, maybe I can get transferred to LA. You guys go without me. So I was 14, my sister was 10, and we had a little brother too, and my mom, and we moved to Tahunga, California. My mom went from three attacks a week into the first year, one tiny little attack. Wow. She was fantastic. Wow. And she lived 35 more years. Wow, wonderful. And it prolonged her life. Mm -hmm. So we moved to California. Mm -hmm. Now back to me, not being selfish or anything, Mom, but, you know, <laughs> when I came here, I had no friends. I was used to having all these friends in Chicago. I came here, I, I didn't have any friends, and it took me a while to make friends. Mm -hmm. So I would come home from school every day, not having made any friends, and I'd play with my little brother, two years old, and get him into sports and teaching him things and playing with him and listening to the radio. Mm -hmm. My dad gave me this big Revere tape recorder, which is right downstairs. If we go down there, I'll show it to you. And it had the reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, but a radio inside. Mm -hmm. And I listened to these brand new radio stations here in LA, which was then KFWB and KRLA. Mm -hmm. And they had disc jockeys that were unbelievable mm -hmm. by B. Mitchell Reed and Wink Martindale and Bob Wink Eubanks. Wink Martindale, wow. And Gary Bob Owens. Eubanks, no kidding, Gary yeah. Owens. Gary Owens, okay, he, might I know been, all he might have been a year or two later, but still. Um, yeah. Uh, they had Sam Riddle, they mm -hmm. had um, Charlie O'Donnell, the guy that said, here's Dick Clark, you know, mm -hmm. for all those years in American Bandstand, they mm -hmm. had Casey Kasem, they had mm -hmm. these disc jockeys here in LA, Wolfman Jack, mm -hmm. they were unbelievable, mm -hmm. so much better than I was used to in the Midwest. And they also had freedom back then, didn't they? Could they play what they wanted, or did they have to play? They had to play a little bit sometimes. Because on FM, yeah. they could then, later, they could play what they wanted. Well, adult, adult rock radio could, yes. but top 40 stations couldn't. Right. Okay. Right. And these were top 40 stations. Okay. And they started doing playlists somewhere in the early 60s to where mm -hmm. they couldn't play what they wanted. Some, some people said that the Midnight to Six guy could play what he wanted, but mm -hmm. the rest of the guys couldn't. But yeah, when I moved here probably in 59, 60, they probably could still. Mm -hmm. You know, I was too young to have known. Right. But yeah, they probably had a, you know, someone told me that KFJB, they know they were limited, but they could play one an hour of one of their favorite new songs. Wow. So I don't know how true all that was. Mm -hmm. But but KFWB and Carol were the two stations here that were mm -hmm. battling each other. Mm -hmm. And they had great disc jockeys. Mm -hmm. Bill Balance was another guy. They had all these great disc jockeys. Mm -hmm. And which was kind of bad for me in a way because I was starting to think, God, maybe I could be a disc jockey one day. But when I started listening to these guys, I thought, I could never be what they are. I could ne If I would have lived in Topeka and listened to the DJs, and I don't mean to make fun of Topeka, but a, a smaller market, <laughs> yeah. Duluth or whatever, mm -hmm. And the DJs weren't as as weren't Casey Kasem, right? Then maybe I could have made that my career move. But mm -hmm. listening in LA, I, said, I could never do a Wink Martindale. These guys are too good. Mm -hmm. 
Now, what I really didn't want to be, I didn't want to really be a DJ. I wanted to be a program director or music director and decide what went on the radio because that's what had been bothering me. Okay, so now how old are you when you make this decision that that's what you want to do? Between 10 and 14. Between 10 and 14. Well, I moved here at 14, and by okay. then I knew that's what I'd love to do, but there was just, I'm sure, I knew there was no chance of it ever coming to fruition. I didn't have enough confidence, confidence. in myself. Okay. I was a, I was a poor student. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know anybody, and I'm brand new to California with no friends yet. Uh, this is not something I can ever do. I think it's really interesting that all these decisions that you're making as a child, you have manifested them all so far without confidence. See, I always thought that to manifest, you really have to have a belief in yourself, yeah. right? Right. So you're, you've managed to do it without believing that you can. I'm not really sure how that works, but right. it works. Yeah, Bill Gates and Paul Allen, and these guys all had a lot of confidence. A lot of confidence. I did not have confidence, but did, I knew but what did, I liked. Yeah, but did that, maybe it was perseverance uh, that you stayed true to what was you were passionate about. You Did you ever change your mind? Maybe, but you know what I say it? What? It was right time, right place. Well, that's good too. Now, they might play hand in hand. Or destiny. But Maybe destiny, but I think right place, right time is what happened for me. Okay. Um, okay, so now I'm here. It's the early 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in high school till 64. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people felt that after Buddy Holly died, mm-hmm. we heard all the, the stories that rock and roll was it not did. as strong anymore. Mm-hmm. Because for those first four years, mm-hmm. rock and roll was unbelievable. One Chuck Berry after another, with Little Richard pounding the piano, with you know Fats Domino and the Everly Brothers, all the one-hit wonders of that mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. with Elvis being on top of the world, with mm-hmm. Pat Boone having lots of hits. There were so many, the Platters, uh, the Drifters, or mm-hmm. the, the songs were unbelievable. You know, Freddie Cannon and Bobby Darin, and mm-hmm. just one after another after another. And you'd see him on the Dick Clark show all the time, American Bandstand and the Dick Clark mm-hmm. Saturday Night Show, mm-hmm. and it was a marvelous time. Elvis gets drafted in 58, and everybody thinks, oh my God, rock and roll's going downhill now. Little Richard's going into the monastery, he's finished, you know. And Jerry Lee Lewis can't have any more hits because he married his 13-year-old cousin. <laughs> and everything was going south. Yeah. And everybody thought, oh now, especially with Elvis going away. Mm-hmm. But Colonel Parker, who I do not believe was a great manager later on, mm-hmm. did some very smart things in those early days. What he did with Elvis is he, he asked the government to prolong his entrance into the army for three months. And Colonel Parker got the greatest writers Lieber Stoller and, and all these great writers and they got Elvis all these incredible great songs mm-hmm. and they went into a studio and he recorded all these songs like 20 or 30 songs I believe mm-hmm. and then he went to the army every three months RCA would put these oh, records out as if Elvis was still around wow no and these girls forgot for a while that Elvis was gone in Germany wow. in the army uh-huh. and I think the songs of 57 58 and 59 might have been better than the 56 and I, I said 57 the songs of 58, 59, and early 60 might have been better even, or as good as 56 and 57. Mm-hmm. There was an article in Billboard magazine, now I was too young, I didn't see it, I saw it years later. There was an article that they wrote in 57, saying mm-hmm. last year in 1956, something happened in Billboard's charts that will never, ever, ever happen again. Okay. Out of 52 weeks, Elvis held the number one position for 26 of those weeks. Wow. Half of those weeks. Now it was a different song, one, week, one song for five weeks, right. then he'd be gone, another song for four weeks, five weeks, whatever. Out of 52 weeks, he was the number one slot wow. for 26 weeks, something that will never, ever be done again. In 1957, out of 52 weeks, Elvis was number one in, you guessed it, 26 of those weeks. He did it again. <laughs> and he did something similar to it in 58 and 59 when he was gone. Mm-hmm. Might not have been 26, but it was, you know, the, the songs were unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And, and 
So rock and roll was still strong. Well, now in February of 59, uh, Buddy Holly dies. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think, oh. The day the music died, right? They, they, yeah. Now, they didn't probably think, oh, the music's dying now. Mm-hmm. But a year or two or three later, some people felt, oh, my God, rock and roll is not as good anymore as it was. Mm-hmm. And as I look at, now, I was just living out, that's right when I moved here. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't making any friends, and I was listening to the radio every day. And I knew that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Because it was a time when the Beach Boys hit in 61. Mm-hmm. Phil Spector with the Ronettes and the Crystals and, the, mm-hmm. uh, and Darlene Love and all those artists were strong as can be. Right. Everly Brothers were as strong as can be. Roy Everson had Old Pretty Woman, and they were it was great. Right. You know? Uh-huh. Um, and I could go on and on with the Freddie Cannons and all the incredible artists. Mm-hmm. That, you know, Dion was unbelievable during that time with 15 or 18 straight hits. Uh-huh. You know? Um, and it was, a, it was a great time. Rock and roll was still as strong as, as it really was in the late 50s, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's an opinion. Everybody has their own opinion. But mm-hmm. uh, I didn't think music died at all. But a lot of people, you know, in fact, when, when I started hearing people talk about it, I said, yeah, music did Wait a minute. I started thinking, no, it didn't, it, it didn't at all. Mm-hmm. And then, if they thought at all, and yet you had Louis Louis in 63, and all these great, great records. And then by the end of 63, if you thought music was dying out, forget it. Because something happened called Motown, mm-hmm. something happened called the British Invasion. Yeah, hello, that's where I was going. <laughs> you know, from Canada, you had the mm-hmm. Guess Who. From mm-hmm. Australia, you had the Bee Gees and other groups. Mm-hmm. Um, from the Sunset Strip, it was unbelievable mm-hmm. with Paul Deere and the Raiders and Mamas and Papas and Steppenwolf. And, you know, and then from um, San Francisco at Haight Ashbury, you had Jefferson Airplane and you had Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. And uh, two years later, you had uh, Creedence Clearwater. So forget it, you know. Um, I just want to say, I hope you all are appreciating as much as I am that not only does this man curate and own this museum of rock and roll, but he is an encyclopedia of <laughs> rock and roll. I mean, what you know, what, what is in your brain is blowing my mind. My you, cousin. And just, just, like, just flowing out. Right, Pete? It's yeah, crazy. Totally. I'm, I'm, I'm like sitting there going, wah In the summers of Michigan, when we used to have those summers, and my cousin and I would have to go to the store to buy something for my parents mm-hmm. and our two mothers, because our dads were back, back off in our cities right. working. But the two mothers, they'd give us, tell us a few things to buy, because we were going to the store anyway to buy some baseball cards or something. Mm-hmm. When we got to the store, we had already recited along that four week every record Fast Domino ever had, how big every record was, what labels they were on, when we last heard them. But when we got to the store, we couldn't, did our mom say they wanted bread, <laughs> eggs. We could, could not remember. Of of we, course. And we didn't have cell phones, and we came home with the wrong stuff. So we remembered what we wanted to remember. That's hysterical. Right. Well, but clearly this this is your passion in life. This is your calling. This is what right. you're here for. But I mean, the fact that you can retain all of this is blowing my mind. It amazes me sometimes. But and I'm not the only one that can do it. I have a few friends that are just as good. You know. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. I'm cynical. But let me give you the rest of the right place, okay. the right time, because you asked okay. that question. Yes. Okay. So now. Now it's 64, okay. and I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. I go to college only because my dad insists, because he was a great student. Mm-hmm. In Chicago, he typed 110 words a minute on a manual, and he got an award for being the number one t- typist in Chicago for speed. He taught me to type when I was young, which is great for the computer days, you know. Mm-hmm. I was up to 70 or 80, you know, and went to classes in high school with all girls, and just I was the only, <laughs> only guy. It was kind of fun. but. But I wasn't a good student, mm-hmm. and I went to Glendale College only to please him, mm-hmm. and failed out the first year. Uh, I didn't study. I, I, I wanted to do well, but I didn't have the interest in, in mm-hmm. studies. Mm-hmm. So I failed out, and now it's Vietnam time. Mm-hmm. 
And I didn't realize, wait a minute, I just failed out of school. And you know, if you're not going to school and not married with kids, you go to Vietnam. Is this before the, uh, the lottery? This is before, before the lottery? Before mm -hmm. the lottery, mm -hmm. a couple years before. Mm -hmm. And it was actually a year or two before Vietnam got really heavy. Mm -hmm. This is 64, well, my college days were 65 and 66, so right. now it was starting. Right. All right, so I get drafted after I failed out of college. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they sent me down to the draft board. Mm -hmm. And I showed them these medical records that my parents gave me to give them. When I was 10 or 11 years old, and then when I was 14 and moved to California, I used to get these little spastic colons, they think it was. They don't, not sure, but once every three or four months, I'd wake up in the middle of the night screaming and yelling. Mm -hmm. Something in my stomach was pulling, pulling, and pulling. Mm -hmm. And they sent me to doctors and they couldn't find anything. First they thought it was ulcers, mm -hmm. even as a young kid, but it wasn't. And they couldn't do enough testing back then, but mm -hmm. they, they thought it was, I always remember them saying, you have the same thing that Eisenhower has, it's spastic colon. And I'd get six, seven times a year. Not that often, but I'd wait. My mom would put hot wash cloths on my stomach, mm -hmm. and within 10 minutes it was gone. Mm -hmm. And I'd be good for two more months. So it was weird, but, mm -hmm. but I took a shot and gave the draft board this, these letters. And sure enough, they gave me a one Y, which meant I wouldn't be drafted again for another year. I said, you know, at first I wanted to go, go to service, and I wanted to serve my country. Mm -hmm. But once I started hearing what, what Vietnam really was all about, I kind of changed my mind. I was never a guy that would go and protest on the streets, mm -hmm. but I realized Vietnam's probably not where I really want to go. First, I, I actually, when I got drafted, I, I forgot to tell you the one part, I got drafted, my parents had a party for me, a going away party, my friends had a going away party for me. I sat with my little brother, who then was eight or nine, and mm -hmm. I sat with him for a couple hours and said, Bob, Bobby, I, there's a good chance I won't be ever coming home. Well, I wanted him to prepare him for the possibility. Yeah. I've already had friends that died there. Uh -huh. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to serve my country, and it's something that I need to do. Mm -hmm. And that was the night I went down there. And oh, this is the second time I went down there. I'm sorry, the first year they just sent me home. Second time I went down there, that's when I really told my brother, I, you know, who knows what happens. Mm -hmm. And I went down there, and they didn't care about the letters anymore. Mm -hmm. And they said, you're drafted. And they gave me a piece of paper with my rifle number, you're going to Fort Ord, and you're, you're you know, whatever. And my stomach started acting up for the first time in months. Because I was nervous, probably. Right, sure. And they took me to a room, and they said, we don't really care about that. You know, you're going, and said, okay, go to this room. And an hour later, this guy comes in, he's a physician. He's a Navy physician, and I'm, I'm going in the Army. I don't know why a Navy guy was there, but they, he said, he listens, and he goes, well, and they sent me home. Nice! So I served one day. <laughs> that was my second day, second time there. Okay. And they said, we're going to call you back in a year, so don't think that we're not going to call you back. And they never called me back again. Mm -hmm. But I went back to school thinking, you know, maybe I, by going back to school, I, I'm not ready to get married, mm -hmm. but I'll go back to school. So I started working at the General Motors assembly line in Van Nuys making cars. But I was going back to, that was a night shift, mm -hmm. and I went to school at LA Valley College. To do what? What was your? I didn't you, know. You didn't know. Just to go to school. Okay. I took a general major. They made me take a speech class, part of my general major. And I'll never forget the, the teacher that changed my life. Her name was Mrs. Economides. I should go back and see if she's still around. I'd like to thank her. I take this speech class, and there's about 30 kids in the class. And it's a 20-week course. Every kid has to give a speech once a week. Mm -hmm. I give 20 speeches. Mm -hmm. At the end of the 20 weeks, she calls me into her office, and she said, I don't know if you've ever gotten A's before. You always said you weren't a great student. I said, I never got a B before. I'm sure I never got a B except for in physical education. Mm -hmm. And she said, I'm going to give you your first A. Everybody loved your speeches more than anybody else. The only thing is, I would say the only downside is, 
you, you've got to stop having a one-track mind. All 20 of your speeches were about music and rock and roll and Billboard magazine. <laughs> your speeches about why Billboard did these charts, I didn't even have a clue then. Right. I made it up. Right. But the kids loved my speeches, mm-hmm. and they thought I knew more about music. Why did Gene Pitney write these songs that weren't hits, and then he wrote these songs for other people that were hits? Like, he's a rebel for the Crystals, you know, whatever. Or the Ronettes, whoever, you know. And so, it was Crystals. So then, she gave me my first day. And she said, by the way, did you know there's a college radio station here? I said, no. Yeah, there's a college radio station. It's a class. You should go. So it was a, I went there. Uh, I did the college radio station. Mm-hmm. And because half the kids came from this class I was just in, that I gave my speeches, they nominated me and made me music director. The job that I always thought I'd ever so want to have someday. I was just going to say, you already manifested your dream. But it was college radio. Okay. We only went to parking lots A and B on windy days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I went to the general manager of the station. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, I'm music director. What do I do? Mm-hmm. Do I just prepare the music? No. You have to go to the record companies and the distributors and get us free records. Well, how do I do that? Just write them letters and we'll get free records. I wrote letters. Not one record came in. Within four weeks or so. Mm -hmm. I go back to him. I said, Dan, this is not working. He says, oh, call him. Oh, yeah, I never thought of that. So I called Reprise and Warner Brothers and Capital and MGM and the distributors. On Pico, there were like nine distributors that carried. uh, Back then, there were 150 major record labels. Mm -hmm. None took my call. At the 10 weeks, halfway through, I'm getting a fail. Wasn't doing my job. And if I fail one course, I had about seven classes, whatever I had. Mm-hmm. You fail one, you're out of school. Wow. That was the rule back then. Mm-hmm. So I said to myself, if I get a fail, I go to Vietnam. Oh. They're going to call me back next year, which they didn't do, but I... Right. You know, and maybe because I was in school, I don't maybe. know, but mm-hmm. they didn't call me back, but I thought they were going to. Mm-hmm. And by that time, I didn't want By then, I was hearing all the protest songs by all the, you know, Phil Bob Dylan's and everybody, and, and I didn't want to go to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So... I get in my car on a Friday, mm-hmm. and I drove down to Pico, and I went to all these different distributors. I knocked on the doors, and none let me in. And I finally went to one that had Mercury, Phillips, and Fontana, three labels. Mm-hmm. Made the Four Seasons, it was a big group, and they had a lot of newer stuff too. Mm-hmm. And I knocked on the door, and I'll never forget the guy's name, he's the second guy I have to thank, his name was Frank Borchetta. Mm-hmm. He said, kid, come on in. And he took me under his wing. He liked me, I was just a little 19 year old punk kid with a flat top haircut, you know, and he, when he heard that the other companies wouldn't let me in, he called all his friends at all these other companies and said, next Friday my friend Steve's coming and he's got a big radio station and you, you, you should be answering, you know, he, he, again, my station went, you know, two, two parking lots, you know, but, wow. but he opened the doors for me. Wow. And now his son, Scott Borchetta, is running at one time Universal Music and now it's Big Machine and, and he's a, he's a, the number one top guy. Uh, at record companies in in Nashville, and every time I see him, I said, "You're dead," and he wow. almost cries knowing that his dad changed my life. Wow! And he put me on the phone with him last year in Nashville at Aww. at CRS convention, and I talked to him and thanked him. It was nice that I could do that. But he opened the doors, and he started. He and all these other guys started inviting me to these parties for the Four Seasons. Mm-hmm. I'm going to parties for all these artists, and mm-hmm. and it was an incredible time in the music business because you know. It, I don't even have to ask him a question. Can you just take us through his whole life? I love this. All right, go ahead. Well, I can wait for a question if you no, want. No, 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 no. I like it. You're we're just, you're just staying overnight, just so you know. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right, I'm just telling you, you have a party tonight, and we're we're 45 minutes in, and we haven't gotten to your career yet, which you, which we want to hear about. Okay, so. okay. Um, okay, so back to right time, right place. Okay. So 
I go from Cal State, I, I graduated LA Valley mm -hmm. with a two-year degree, mm -hmm. and I go to Cal State LA. Mm -hmm. And they'd heard about me, and they made me program director. And for anybody who's seen the movie Almost Famous, of course, I was that kid. Really? All these record, being, you know, it wasn't like I was, and I'm, I'm not putting down any markets, but it's not like I was at a college radio station in Cheyenne, Wyoming, mm -hmm. you know, or in Austin, Texas. Right. I was in Los Angeles. Right. So when I was knocking on all these doors and going to all, starting to meet all these people, they started mm -hmm. inviting me to all these incredible parties and to the Troubadour every Tuesday for five years or six years, I went to the Troubadour every Tuesday to see these new acts that some people hadn't heard of yet, like Gordon Lightfoot or Carole King, mm -hmm. you know, or Linda Rostam when she broke up with Stone Ponies, or Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young with opening acts nobody ever heard of, like Steve Martin or, <laughs> oh, Richard Pryor. Wow. And there was no security at the Troubadour. And Linda Ronstadt would play, or, or um, uh, all, the Troubadour was all the softer acts, mm -hmm. okay? And uh, it was Jackson Brown and mm -hmm. the Eagles in their mm -hmm. early days. Mm -hmm. And I'd just go knock on their door, come on in! And, you know, they were doing, doing drugs, many of them, and I never did drugs. And I didn't, it wasn't that I didn't like doing them, I just oh. played sports and didn't care about drugs. Mm -hmm. So I'd sit there and pretend I was doing it, but I wouldn't be doing it. And I, it's, I very seldom in my whole life I've ever tried a few things, but I, I never cared about it. But I'd sit there, I'd sit with Linda Ronstadt for an hour and a half and just talk to her, you know, or uh, it was just a, a time in my life with Dion and with all these incredible, our Everly Brothers. I just asked them stories and just learned about them, you know, and talked about what was it like to be on the American Bandstand in the early days, you know, five years ago, you know. Right. And then every Friday night, every Tuesday was the Troubadour. Mm -hmm. And every Friday was the Whiskey A Go-Go. And back then, every week was groups that you just couldn't believe, you know, that became the Who and, you know, uh, from England or Hermits Hermits or um, the Young Rascals from America mm -hmm. or, or Paul Revere and the Raiders or the Birds and the Turtles and one week after another, you know, um, I saw Joe Cocker there first time ever. I saw uh, Janis Joplin there. I went backstage and didn't take pictures, but I met them all. Wow. For a second or two. Did you, you know, meet Hendrix? I met Hendrix one, ah! one time for 10 seconds, but I met him. You know, saw him at the Whiskey A Go-Go mm -hmm. and realized how great they were. Mm -hmm. um, I've been to over 4,000 showcases and concerts, you know, over the years. I still go to three or four a week, you know. And at this time, wait, what station are you working at at this time? Cal State LA. Okay. Just a little college. And you're doing all this while you're working college radio? Yes. Wow. Right. All right. And so... While I'm doing that, mm -hmm. the station KFWB here, it was actually about a year before when I was still at LA Valley College, they were, they were getting no ratings anymore. Major disc jockeys, some of them had left, they had a few still. Mm -hmm. And KRLA was also dying out because KFWB and KRLA were getting killed by KHJ, mm -hmm. Boss Radio. They took over the market. Mm -hmm. And I hated KHJ mm -hmm. as a listener because mm -hmm. KHJ didn't allow their disc jockeys to really talk. Mm -hmm. And I loved hearing Wink Martindale tell a story right. about why um, Buddy Holly did this, or why so-and-so did that, or who mm -hmm. fell off a train track, or who, you know, got right. mugged at an airport. I loved hearing those stories about different artists mm -hmm. and what happened to Fabian and Frankie Avalon, and mm -hmm. they were fun stories, but KHJ didn't allow that to be done. Mm -hmm. And so I listened to their DJs, and they just played the records, and they, I, I knew they sped them up so they could say they got an extra one and a half songs in per hour. I could tell by my ear that they weren't playing the actual speed. No kidding. And they would cut them out early. They uh -huh. faded them early. Right. And, and I just didn't like the station at all. And the, the afternoon guy was, was the real Don Steele. Mm -hmm. And I thought he was obnoxious and, and mm -hmm. I, I, couldn't, I just couldn't stand the concept. And I missed my KFJ being Carol A, but knew they were dying. Mm -hmm. 
Well, KFWB, who had been the first Pat Forty station, uh-huh. heard about some kid in the valley. Now we're talking like almost famous again. Right. Some kid in the valley who knew more about records, and they somehow found out about me and uh-huh. called me up and asked if I would be an intern at KFWB. This is the late 60s. Mm-hmm. They had a room, huge room with records. You couldn't walk in the room. It was stacked up. They just threw the records in the room. And they wanted to make a library out of it. So I was an intern for seven months. And I filed it, and I made a beautiful library for them. And then when I was just about done, the program director called me in, and Steve, I got good news and bad news. Mm-hmm. Good news is everybody from Wink Martindale to B. Mitchell Reed to whoever was there at the time mm-hmm. think you're unbelievable. That room that you put together is untouchable. It's mm-hmm. gorgeous. Bad news is we've been bought by Westinghouse, and we go all news a week from Monday. No more rock and roll, and all DJs are fired, and... Wow. I, I'm fired and you know so I asked the new owners I said what are you going to do with all these records and they said well we're going to give them to Beacons uh, and not pay the bill Beacon storage we don't want them well we got oh this kid oh my god a museum's this being this kid born. did this for eight months he never got paid and how about if we let him take as many as he wants nope we don't want some kid walking out with boxes of records that'll look terrible no so the PD says you know what, I'm getting fired, I don't care. If you get, go out and buy a briefcase that no one can see in, you can take as many as you want. And back then they were on Hollywood Boulevard with a, on the second floor of this building, right next to Musso and Frank. And if you went down one story into this half alley, I could park there all day long. And so I made about, for 11 days, until they went all news, I made about 40 or 50 trips down, filled up my car till I couldn't even, I had a big, big Chevy um, Caprice. And I, I would drive home like this with records on my lap and on the back seat and the trunk full, you know. And I would make about four trips a day for 11 days and took about half these records. And that was the second part of me being a big collector. The first part, actually the third part. The first part was when I did all these parties, when I moved here and started making friends and I did all these parties, they wanted to know, Steve, what records should we play? Should we play Diana Ross or should we play Martha and the Mandela's? I'll, I'll take care of it. And at the end of the night at these parties, I was finally making friends They'd say, Steve, you did a great job. You keep the records. So the girls would give me the records they had bought. Wow. That was the first part of my collection. Uh-huh. You know, you could say my buying 12 records in my first five years was it, but I didn't have any records, so that didn't count. Uh-huh. So I started collecting that way. Mm-hmm. Then, when I started going to all these record companies, and I was filling up the car with records every Friday and going to all these record companies, and that was the second part of it. Then the third part of it was KFWB, uh, bringing home much of their collection. Now right. I had a pretty good collection. Mm-hmm. And then... Two years later, and again, now I'm really thinking, maybe I can be a music director somewhere, even though I knew you sort of had to be a DJ first mm-hmm. to work your way up. Is and that true? Pretty much true. Mm-hmm. Most every program director, music director, not all, but most, mm-hmm. worked their way up from being a DJ. Mm-hmm. And so I tried, I practiced and practiced and practiced on these two stations trying to be a DJ, but I, I knew I was not going to ever be a great DJ, but maybe I could be good enough. Mm-hmm. And if I had to go start in Scranton, Pennsylvania, I'll go start in Scranton, you know, work my way mm-hmm. up. And someday maybe I could be a music director or a program director. Mm-hmm. So, um, finally, um, I'm trying to think, I, I had something I wanted to tell you, I lost my train of thought, but I'll get back to it. Okay, okay so um, I started getting invited to all these things. Mm-hmm. And then I'm at the Troubadour every Tuesday seeing Neil Diamond, brand new artist, all these, it was incredible. And so, all of a sudden, a guy from KRLA, program director comes over to me and I'd met him once he says Steve you go to everything I can't you're at the whiskey you're here every time I come anywhere I see you I'm starting a company 
and we're going to do start. We're going to start this thing. It's brand new. It's called syndication. And we're going to interview Glenn Campbell, and we're going to put a tape together for five minutes and sell them to radio stations so they can play a little bit of things, news about Glenn Campbell. And since you go to everything, do you have a tape recorder? I said, yeah, I got this big Revere camera tape recorder. It's forty pounds, but if you take it to all these places you get invited to and interview all these artists, you'll be our interview guy. Wow! And we'll put these shows together. This was about '69, mm -hmm. and so since I knew everybody at Motown mm -hmm. and knew everybody at All Capital and Warner Brothers. I said, you got anybody to interview? I'll interview them. So within the next half a year, I interviewed Lou Rawls, um, me and the original Five Temptations in a Room for about a half an hour, somewhere an hour. Mm -hmm. Stevie Wonder, when he was 17, I was 19. Dion at the Troubadour, Linda Ronstadt. Um, so you are almost famous. That is your life. Yeah, I was that kid. Mm -hmm. I really was. I was everywhere and going to these you parties. Did he really do? Um, he did, right? I didn't know him. Right, but till later. Okay. So I don't know if he was doing, doing the same, same thing. things I was doing, mm -hmm. but probably was. Mm -hmm. You know, did he do more of it or less of it? I don't know. Yeah. But I was there. Mm -hmm. I interviewed Smokey and the original Three Miracles, just me and them in the room, and and uh, I did about thirty-five to forty interviews: Martha and the Mandelas, mm -hmm. um, Bill Medley, anybody, Jackie not, DeShannon, anybody exceptionally nice, and anybody not nice. It's funny you say that. That mm -hmm. was the next thing I was going to tell you. Okay. Most everybody was unbelievable to me. Mm -hmm. Bill Medley, for example, I didn't know him. Mm -hmm. He was playing the West Side Room at the Hyatt in in West in, um, in West LA. Okay. And I got the interview. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to see him after his show. Mm -hmm. It was his first show he ever did without the Righteous Brothers, without mm -hmm. Bobby Hatfield. Mm -hmm. His first on his own. And I got to be at the show for free and watch him and. It was a great show. He was terrific. And afterwards, I met him backstage, and I said, "Hey, I'm Steve Resnick. I'm here to do the interview." He says, "Steve, I, I knew you were coming tonight, and I didn't know how to reach you. I feel so bad, but tonight's my birthday, and I got a suite up at the hotel on the 19th floor, and I got my new girlfriend here, who he married, uh, mm -hmm. and he wrote a song called Brown Eyed Woman,' which he played for her. She's black, mm -hmm. and he played the song Brown Eyed Woman that night, the first time he played it. Wow! And he he's so nice to me, mm -hmm. and he says. I can't thank you enough for coming, and I hope you enjoyed the show, but I feel bad. I, I, I was partying. I got 30 people coming to my hotel suite, and I really can't, you know, do the do an interview. interview. Uh -huh. But you're invited. And I uh, had a guy friend with me. I didn't uh -huh. have a date, but uh -huh. we went up to the hotel. He said, well, he said, but come up to my party. Be, be part of the party. Went to the party, you know, and, and about halfway through, he comes over to me. He hadn't talked to me again to him at all. Mm -hmm. He comes over and says, Steve, I feel so bad. The suite has a bedroom part of the suite next to it. Why don't we sneak over there for 20 minutes and do an interview? Are you sure Cameron Crowe didn't take your life and make Almost I Famous? Know. I know. I don't know. This is sounding really... I got no really, credit for that. This is sounding really familiar to me. So I say to Bill Metley, I said, Bill, I'm having a great time. Don't worry. We'll do it in a week or two. Don't, we can do it anytime. He said, no. You came all this way. and I, you, know, you came from Glendale. I know you live in Glendale. You're, oh, he says, let's go next door and do it. I said, okay. And I did the interview with him. And, and, but to answer your question, he put his arm around me after he says, Steve, I do these interviews and people ask me my favorite color. You ask great questions. I'm, I really, you know, it's a young kid, but you really, you know, of course he was like 23, 24. Right. And he says, but you don't ask silly, stupid questions. How come? I said, I watched Dick Clark all my life. I, I, you know. And by the way, when I was about, mm -hmm. when, I, when I was watching American Bandstand every day when I was 9 or 10 or 11, one day I ran into the kitchen because my mom was making cookies. Mm -hmm. And I said, Mom, can I have a cookie? I gotta go back to the TV because, you know, Brian Highland's gonna be on, whatever. She says, why don't you go out and play? Why do you watch American Bandstand every day, you know? 
I said, man, let me just tell you something. Dick Clark and Elvis Presley, if I ever meet them, I may as well just die and go to heaven. There'll be no reason for me to go on in life. That will, that's my goal. You know? And I got to be great friends with Dick Clark. And he's been here to the museum many times. And I was supposed to meet Elvis twice, but it didn't quite work out. But that, that's another story we'll tell another time. But anyway, um, so people like Bill Medley mm -hmm. and Jackie Michan and so many of the artists, to answer your question, said, Steve, you really do a great interview. Mm -hmm. And I did about 30 of them. Mm -hmm. But then one day, things didn't go so well. I had been calling Atlantic Records. Mm -hmm. And I did, I did an interview with Solomon Burke, the great old R&B, like B.B. King kind of guy. Mm -hmm. I did an interview with somebody else on Atlantic, I forget who it was. And they liked me a lot and they asked me to do a few interviews. I was doing the same thing at A&M. Mm -hmm. I did Sergio Mendez, I did Julius Wechter in the Baja Moon, the band. Mm -hmm. I did a girl that almost made it, who I thought was terrific, um, uh, Evie Sands. Mm -hmm. uh, she was like a Timmy Euro kind of artist. But, um, so I'm doing a lot for a Atlantic and A&M. My contact at A&M, Bob Garcia, each time he connected me, he called me up and said, Steve, I got Dillard and Clark. Dillard from the Dillards and Clark from the Birds. Mm -hmm. And he said, I got an interview. And I'd say, okay, but I really want to do your boss, Herb Alpert. Because he's selling more records than the Stones and the Beatles combined, he wow. said. Wow. And he was. Wow. And he said, oh, he's kind of shy. And I'll see if I can work it out. Okay. When Atlantic called me for somebody, like Solomon Burke or, mm -hmm. you know, somebody, I'd say, the girl's name was Tangie. I said, Tangie, my favorite group in the world is the Bee Gees. They've got two brand new hits, To Love Somebody and uh, New York Mining Disaster. I, I think they're going to be big. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> when they come in, <clears throat> in two weeks they're coming into LA, and I not only want tickets to, to the show if you can get them for me, but I want to interview them. Okay. So a couple weeks later, after I've done 30 interviews, mm -hmm. Atlantic calls mm -hmm. and says, Steve, got an interview for you. I said, the Bee Gees? No, not the Bee Gees. They're in town. We'll try to get them for you. But I got this new group. One of them was in the Yardbirds, and they're, they're, we think they're going to be big. They don't have any records out yet, and they're already starting to be big in England. We think they're going to be pretty big. They got a very funny name. You promise not to laugh when I say their name. And I need you to go to the to the uh, hotel, um, the one where where where, um, where Belushi died. The, uh, I, I, Marmont. I, yeah, the Chateau Marmont. Yeah. Yeah. They're in the they're in the back bungalow, same bungalow I think he died in, uh, mm -hmm. but it was years ten years before that. Right. We need you to go to the Chateau Marmont to interview your brand new group. Don't laugh. I said, can't you? I won't laugh. And she says their name is Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Never heard of him. Okay. Now, I had already done three or four or five other groups that were brand new I never heard of. Mm -hmm. I still did just fine. I knew what to ask. Right, of course. Okay? And I can share with them rock and roll. like. Uh-huh. You know. So I get there, and this was not after a concert. It was not after. It was, they were just there for a public relations thing. Mm -hmm. And so I had no idea what to expect, except mm -hmm. I'll do another interview. Mm -hmm. And I knew one, one of them was in the Yardbirds, and, mm -hmm. you know, and so that could, I knew the Yardbirds songs and all that. So I meet all the guys, and when I started, I said, hi, this is Steve Resnick, and today I'm with Led Zeppelin, and so, John, John Bonham, where are you guys from? You come here to interview us, and you don't know where we're from? <laughs> I'm sorry, let me start again, let me start again, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry. I knew they were from England, but I didn't, you know. Right. I pushed the button, I started again, hi, this is Steve Resnick, and I'd always say my radio station at Cal State LA, mm -hmm. even though I was really doing it for the other TV show, radio show, syndication show. Hi, this is Steve Resnick. I'm here with KBLA, and uh, today I'm with Led Zeppelin. And so let me go to you. And uh, I went to one of the other guys, and mm -hmm. I said, how many guys in the group? And as soon as I did that, I knew I was in trouble. It was another, another question they wouldn't want, you know. Right. There were questions I asked all the other new artists. Right. I did the same thing with, with um, 
Sweden's Clearwater, and they were wonderful. Right. Okay. But they didn't like it. And they were going back and forth to the bathroom, which I didn't realize until about five years later. Wait a they minute. They were doing drugs. Wait a minute. Of now course. I know why. <laughs> they were probably up all night. Right. It was 12 noon. They probably didn't want to be doing an interview right. with some little college radio guy. Right. And they took it out on me. Uh-huh. Now, after about 10 minutes, they said, hey, we're so sorry. Stop the tape record. Start it again. We'll, we'll be nice to you. And they oh. were. Hmm. So it was oh, okay. Nice. But, okay. But I thought it was all going to go back to Tangi and Atlantic Records, mm-hmm. and I thought I'd be blackballed from the industry. Mm-hmm. And so for the next three days, I told my mom, I was still living at home, mm-hmm. Mom, if any record company calls, I'm not here. Because <laughs> I know they're going to say, you really effed up. <laughs> not knowing that nobody would care. Mm-hmm. All Atlantic wanted to do, all these record companies wanted to do was say, tell the manager, yeah, we had another interview with your group Led Zeppelin. That's all they wanted to do. They couldn't have cared less if it got played on the radio. Anyway. Right, right. All right. So three days later, my mom forgets. Steve, it's Bob Garcia from A&M. Oh, geez, Mom, I told you. He's going to, you know, he's a tough guy. He's going to really give me a hard time. So I picked it up thinking he's going to give me a hard time. So I, I wanted to get him off track. So I said, Herb Alpert? Herb Alpert? Right? He wants to do the interview? No, Herb's still kind of shy. He doesn't want to do it. But I got a, another, I, I've got an artist I want you to do. So he didn't know anything about the interview, of course. The, okay. the bad one. Mm-hmm. And so he said, I got it. And he, it was funny. He said, it's a guy from England, doesn't have a record out. We think he's going to be big, and he's got a funny name. It was the same story that Atlantic right. told me. I said, well, what's his name? He said, Joe Cocker. Okay. All right. So three days later, I go to Adam to interview him. I wasn't going to make the same mistake. So I Googled him. Okay, maybe in, 19, maybe in, 19, maybe in 1970. Him. Maybe I didn't Google him. But somehow I found out, and I'm exaggerating, but I found out his shoe size, the names of his brothers and sisters. Hang on one second. Pete, we need the other one. That one's not. Ah, there you go. We're, we're, good? Pete's putting some light on us because okay. it's getting dark. Thank you, Pete. Okay, we good? Well, yeah. Beautiful. Somehow I knew everything there was to know about Joe Cocker. I made sure I wasn't going to make the okay, same mistake. Okay, so now how, in those days, how did you do it? I just called all the record companies, mm-hmm. the ones that might have, I, I knew people at record companies who knew about everybody. I see. And I would just call them, I might have called some people at radio stations and asked them what they mm-hmm. knew, even though it wasn't on the radio yet. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm exaggerating, but I found out a lot about them. Uh-huh. And as I gave the interview to Joe Cocker mm-hmm. at a little office at A&M Records on La Brea, two or three record company A&M vice presidents walked by. Mm-hmm. And after the interview, they went to my, my connector guy, Bob Garcia, and said, who's that kid in there with Hire him immediately. Wow. We need guys like that here at AM. Hire him immediately. Wow. And they hired me to run their college radio program. I was still at Cal State LA, but I got my, my, my classes to be on Tuesdays and Thursdays, so I worked mm-hmm. on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and they were fine with that. Mm-hmm. And I went, worked there for six months. Mm-hmm. And after four months, I revived, in their opinion, a college radio program that they had mm-hmm. that was falling apart. And they were going to dismantle it. They said, this is the last chance. We have four guys. They weren't doing a good job, but they liked the job I was doing. Mm-hmm. And they said, you revived it. Now, there was a kid in the mailroom. Mm-hmm. Now, you know who Alan Freed was? Sure, of course. Okay. Most everybody probably knows who Alan Freed, but for those of you who don't mm-hmm. know Alan Freed, Dick Clark was the king of rock and roll on television. Mm-hmm. Alan Freed, Freed was the major disc jockey on radio mm-hmm. out of a station in New York, I think WMCA or WMGM. And I wasn't living there in, on the East Coast, but he was the god. And at night, on his AM radio station, he went to 13 states. Mm-hmm. In the daytime, they, but he's only, he was on at nighttime. Mm-hmm. Daytime, they didn't go very far, but at nighttime, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And he was the guy that came up with the name rock and roll. Mm-hmm. He was the guy that put black artists on the radio, the Moonglows and the Coasters and the Drifters, all these mm-hmm. rock and roll groups 
that just didn't get a lot of airplay. Mm -hmm. He was one of the first to do that. Mm -hmm. And he was making $300,000 a year, which today would be wow. like $7 million, Yeah. You know. The other doctor shops were getting 24000 or 12000 mm -hmm. or fifteen. He was making $300,000 a year in wow. New York. Mm -hmm. And the payola scandals a few years later, unfortunately, ended his career. But um, there was a kid in the mailroom, and his name was Lance Freed, mm -hmm. Alan Freed's son. A&M mm -hmm. is, that I worked at now, mm -hmm. was Albert and Moss, Herb Albert and Jerry Moss, A&M. Mm -hmm. Jerry Moss, Herb Albert was the talent. Right. Jerry Moss was the brains. Uh -huh. He put the whole record company together. Herb was too, but Jerry was that side of it, mm -hmm. the executive side. Before Herb and Jerry started A&M in 1962, Herb was a promotion man. Jerry was a promotion man in New York, and he was Alan Freed's closest friend. Mm -hmm. When Alan Freed supposedly died a couple years later of a broken heart from being, his career was destroyed. Mm -hmm. Supposedly Jerry was holding his hand or was in the hospital room. And supposedly, I never really asked Jerry this, but uh -huh. it could, the story could be a little bit different or wrong, but apparently as he was dying that night, he said to Jerry, he says, Jerry, if you and Herb start that record company, my oldest son is, graduating college and he'll be fine, but Lance is just getting out of high school and would you take care of him? Make sure he goes to, on the right road. And so when A&M started, he hired Lance and put him in the mailroom. Mm -hmm. And he was brand new, but he did that for three years and it was time for Lance to move on. And so apparently, Jerry Moss, our boss, went to Gil Friesen, our general manager, who became president later on, and said, find a place for Lance Freed. He can't be in the mailroom any longer. Well, you know, We'll put him in, in the college thing, and we'll move that. Steve, Steve can't be here five days a week anyway, and we'll move Steve down a notch. And so it was my first demotion. Mm. After making this department good, Lance mm. came in as my boss, who didn't know a college radio station from, you know. Mm -hmm. But Lance learned. Mm -hmm. He was a fantastic guy. Mm -hmm. And at first, I resented him coming in and taking my job mm -hmm. and me being his assistant. But we went to lunch every day, and he would tell me stories about coming home from high school and his dad would be there with Jackie Wilson, or his dad would be there with Sam Cooke, or his dad would be there with the Beatles, you know. And Lance was just a fantastic guy, mm -hmm. and I, we got to be great friends. But then two months later, summer came. They didn't need two guys doing college when most college stations weren't existing in the summer. They'd be off the air, and they laid me off. There was a guy at A&M who liked me, who went to ABC Records, and offered me a job, and told me to, I only have 30 units left at Cal State LA. He says, get out of school, and I'm giving you, giving you a great job to do rock promotion. I said, you sure I'm ready for rock promotion? I was 20 years old. You're ready for it. So he's going to hire me week by week by week by week. Three weeks goes by, four weeks go by, five weeks go by. He keeps calling and saying, just hold on. It's going to happen real soon. Mm -hmm. Six weeks, seventh week, he has a dinner at his house. And there's about six, seven people there. And one of them is the nephew of the president of the company. Mm -hmm. And I meet him. Mm -hmm. No big deal. Another week goes by, another week goes by, another week goes by. I would have been halfway through with my final classes to graduate mm -hmm. that I dropped. Mm -hmm. And I'm waiting and waiting and waiting mm -hmm. and waiting. Finally, I just, I'm not happy. Mm -hmm. And I go in and, and see this girl, Tanji, that I knew from before. And I said, is Bob in? And he goes, not Bob Garcia, not the guy from A&M. Another guy from A&M who went over to ABC. And he said, uh, no, he's at lunch. But she didn't know that I was unhappy mm -hmm. from not being hired. She didn't know. She just liked me. She said, go sit in his office, use his phone, you know. So I'm in there. When he walks in the office after his lunch and he saw me, tears came to his eyes. He goes, oh my God, Steve, I knew this day would come. I knew one day you'd come and say, why didn't I hire you when I promised you? 
and 10 weeks have gone by. But remember that kid at my dinner th three weeks ago? I said, yeah. He's the grandson of the president of the company and they forced me to hire him instead of you. And I didn't know how to tell you. I, I, you waited all these weeks and, I, and you, oh. you dropped school and I, oh. I, I knew someday you'd come in and I dreaded oh. that day would come, uh -huh. but I didn't know how to call you and tell you. And he was crying. Mm -hmm. I mean, just a little tears, you know. Mm -hmm. And so then the door, we're in this office, the door's open, but the door opens like a little more mm -hmm. and there's a guy behind that I can't see. Mm -hmm. And the guy says, I couldn't see him. He says, Larry, you wanna go to lunch? And Larry says, I've already been, uh, but you remember that kid I was telling you about that I couldn't because I wanted to, yeah. And I still couldn't see him. He says, he's right here. And he comes around, meets Steve Resnick. Hi, Steve Resnick. He says, my name is Dennis Laventhal. What's your name? Steve Resnick. You're hired, come with me. That was my job interview. So right time, right place. <laughs> wow. That was my first job. And I've never had to look for a job. Every job I had ever since came to me. Wow. But who knows what I would have done since I didn't get that job. I'm living at home. Don't know really all that many records. Well, I knew some people already, but who knows what I would have done. And I wanted to be on the radio side. This is the record side. So from that day, I changed my mind from being a music director or program director to being a record company executive. And I worked at ABC for seven years and was lucky enough to be there at a time with Jimmy Buffett and Jim Croce and Three Dog Night and Steppenwolf and Mamas and Papas and the beginning of Tom Petty and the beginning of Joe Walsh uh, and the two of the Fifth Dimension, Billy and Marilyn, and I'm forgetting half the groups we had. We were so big. Uh, we had the Four Tops from Motown with two big hits. Mm -hmm. We just had hit after hit after hit after hit, Steely Dan, and it was a fantastic career. And I brought this over here where was it there? Oh, right here. You know, the one thing that, hi, Paul, the one <laughs> thing that I'm getting that... Jim Croce that and Jimmy Buffett. I, I saw Jim Croce mm. at Carnegie Hall. I saw mm -hmm. him open for Cat Stevens. Yeah. And it was when Jim, nobody knew who Jim Croce right, was. Right. And he was the first singer-songwriter that I saw that told the whole story Absolutely. of every song that he did. He would it sing was, a song and do 15 minutes of talk. At sing least, a song in 15 minutes. Exactly. And as great as the songs were, you almost look more the forward to talking. Were the stories yes. were amazing. Yes. So the stories about Bad, Bad Leroy Brown mm -hmm. were true stories, mm -hmm. you know, uh, or you don't mess around with Jim. Mm -hmm. True stories, mm -hmm. you know. Um, now, remember, I'm a kid at ABC Records, and I'm meeting Three Dog Night and Mamas and Papas, who were already huge, Steppenwolf, John Kay, and all right. these. And I stayed away from them. I, I, I was scared to hang around with them. I, you know, I thought... If I get to be friends with them, they're going to say, how come you don't get me more, more airplay? You know, or uh, how come I'm not a bigger star? You know, whatever. If their careers went south. What was your job, when you, when you were doing rock and roll promotion, I have a very good friend that, Bruce Tenenbaum. You, I know you Bruce know, very well. Okay, we went to sixth grade together. I've known him forever. So what is your job as a rock and roll promoter at a label back then? Well, what are you doing? I wasn't quite a promoter yet. Okay, what are you doing? I was, they, that guy that hired me, Dennis okay. Leventhal. Uh -huh put me into a job where, again, we didn't have any distributors. We, we had independent distributors in every city. Right. So we never knew how, what they were doing with our record. We didn't own the distributors. Okay. We would hire Jim's distributors in Shreveport. And mm -hmm. Then we'd call them and say, Three Dog Nights on the radio in the South, and, and so get records in the stores. And we would hope they would do it right. Right. So they put me on the phones calling all these record stores. If, a, if one of our songs would be played in Cincinnati, mm -hmm. I'd call all the stores in Cincinnati within a couple of days mm -hmm. and say, do you have the Steppenwolf song in? Because it's being played there, NWSAI in Cincinnati. And you, how many copies do you have? Is, is it being requested? Are we being so, you know, right. I would get a report then. Mm -hmm. I did that for six months and, and the label liked me. And I mm -hmm. said, I was doing college radio at A&M. Could I do college radio over and above my regular job, do both? Mm -hmm. And they let me. And then within a year, they made me a promotion guy. So to answer your question, when I became a promotion guy, mm -hmm. at first I wasn't 
they didn't want me to go to any markets bigger than Little Rock. I, okay. One million was as high as I would go because I wasn't ready for the big time yet. Right. But it was my job to call the stations at that time in Eugene, Oregon, mm -hmm. in small towns in Wyoming and North Dakota mm -hmm. and Bismarck and places, mm -hmm. and get to be friends with them and get to promote them and even go to those markets and get records played. Mm -hmm. It was my job to get the records played on the radio stations in these smaller markets. I was called. So are you doing like the payola thing? Well, payola back then was rampant. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to do that much in smaller markets because they were just happy that I would come visit. Because mm -hmm. the major companies were not, they'd call some of the small markets, but I went there. I went to 250 cities in my first year and a half, wow. in and, person. And did you schmooze that? What did you do when you get there? Usually lunch or dinner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very seldom was there anything else that mm -hmm. you know wasn't above board. Right. And back then there was payola. There, there was payola, but payola was legal and illegal. What does that mean? Well, taking them to dinner or driving mm -hmm. them to Kansas City to see an artist. That's legal. Legal. Mm -hmm. If giving them cash, not legal. Not legal. Mm -hmm. No. Right. Mm -hmm. Not even buying a coke was for them legal. You know, but no one paid attention. And back, right. back then, you're no lighting us beautifully, Pete. I'm looking <laughs> at it. You're it's right. A, it's a beautiful thing. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, do we have questions? Because uh, we do. We do. All right. Okay. Let's take a pause. Okay. And, um, ask a couple questions, Pete. Okay. Let's see. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, this is interesting. Somebody wanted to know what that thing is called that you put in the middle of a forty-five <laughs> with a hole in it. Do you really think I would know that that was called a <laughs> spindle? Is it called a spindle? The plastic I the insert, right? I loved those. Yeah, there were metal ones. There were plastic ones. Yeah. They were bright colors usually. usually Yellow, usually. Yeah, red. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, did you listen to Julie London? Well, I remember Julie London pretty well, um, but that was more of what they, now it's called easy listening. She was middle of the road, MOR back then. And that was again, the Eddie Fishers and Perry Comos and Doris Days that I, except I, didn't, I know I bought a couple of those records, but still I stayed away from those. But you know, when you had, when you had 30 rock and rollers on a chart mm -hmm. and then six or seven middle of the road, Right. So if you had a Tammy by um, Tammy, what's her name? She just passed away. Debbie Reynolds. Uh, no, Debbie well, Reynolds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you had Tammy by, mm -hmm. you know, you didn't mind the fact that there were one or two or three or four middle of the road records as long as you had your thirty big rock right. and rollers. It's right. okay. Back then you had a nice mix because top forty stations would play those songs, those mm -hmm. MRR couple, Johnny Mathis or, mm -hmm. or Debbie Reynolds. They'd also play the rock and rolls by Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers and all that. Then they'd also play. Johnny Cash and some couple of country records, mm -hmm. Patsy Cline, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. So listening to Top 40 radio back then was way different than it is now. You'd get every kind of music. By the way, I just want to say, this person was watching the show last week because we had a Julie London question mm -hmm. last week also. <laughs> Who has a Julie London question? Are, are, is there, is there mm -hmm. any more and then we're going to go back yeah, to Yeah, what's, uh, what's your favorite rock group and your favorite solo artist? Well, mm. you might say this to yourself. I say this to people when they come over and see my museum, and you're all invited, by the way. <laughs> When people come over and they're big rock and roll fans, I say to people sometimes, because that's the question I'm often asked, I say, okay, remember Tom Hanks in that movie with FedEx where he goes to that island and he, you know, right? Yeah, what was that called? Castaway? Cast yeah, Castaway, yeah. right. Okay, if you were that person, and you can answer if you think about it, you can answer that question. If you were Tom Hanks on that island, what do you take just like 10 camps, but they gave you a sound system <laughs> and only one album, <laughs> who would that artist be? Now, I know who mine would be. Do you really? Mm -hmm. An album I just could never get tired of. I got, I got four or five, but if I had to pick one, it would be Breakfast in America by Supertramp. Yeah. Wow. I just don't get tired of that. Yeah. Now, you can't pick a greatest hits because that's not quite the same thing. But mm -hmm. if you had a greatest hits, for me, it might be Bob Seger or it might be the Bee Gees. For me, it might be Surrealistic Pillow by Jefferson Airplane. Yep. 
Or it could be we were just talking about one of the greatest soundtracks ever, the Bee Gees um, from Staying Alive from uh, Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. I mean, right. it just doesn't get better than that right. for a soundtrack, exactly. right? It doesn't. That's the 34th biggest selling soundtrack of all time. It's an album of all time. Number one biggest sound soundtrack of all time. Is it? I think so. Should be. Hmm. Yep. And favorite solo artist? Well, my favorite, of course, is Elvis by far. Yeah. Um, but that's so obvious that I kind of leave him off to the side. But um, mm -hmm. he changed my life when I was nine, just, mm -hmm. watch, just watching the Ed Sullivan show. But yeah. early on, I loved Bobby Darin. Um, Later on, I loved the, the Motown artists, especially Marvin Gaye, mm -hmm. who I became a friend with and played football with later. And he'd been here to see the museum before he passed away, so nice. that was kind of nice. Mm -hmm. Loved Marvin Gaye. Um, I loved so, Sam Cooke and Jackie Wilson. Okay, I, so while we're here and talking about this, tell, tell us some of your favorite celebrity stories. You have to tell your Stevie Wonder story, because it's just a killer. Okay. Especially since you mentioned okay. that you met him early on. Okay. Right? Before I tell you that story, I'll okay. tell you just... That one's a few minutes long, but I'll tell you a couple of little tiny quick ones. Okay. Um, in my 40 years in the music business, in my 21 years of promotion, I, I tell people sometimes, if they ask me if I ever had any close encounters with death or whatever, I said there were two times when I was almost killed Really? Uh, in the music business. Mm -hmm. One time was just sort of a kind of. Uh, I was a young kid, just starting at ABC Records, mm -hmm. the, the very first year I was in, and I was, going doing, I was working college radio stations at my first ever convention, a college radio convention in Boston. Mm -hmm. And I was going to every fraternity, I stayed there for two weeks and went to every fraternity and every sorority at all the colleges, I mean, how many colleges there are there. And I was putting up posters for Three Dog Night and Steppenwolf and all the groups we had, John, um, Joe Walsh and everybody. And on my third or fourth day, my boss calls me, the same guy that I thought you hired me. He says, Steve, tomorrow you're not doing any of that stuff. You're going to the Boston Sheraton and you're meeting with B.B. King, our artist, who I'd never met yet. Mm -hmm. Our artist B.B. King, he's going to be there, and his manager, and you're going to have a limo, and you're going to take a couple of important distributor people there, and you're all going to go to a, a show he's going to do at a penitentiary. Mm -hmm. Oh, at a penitentiary. Kind of like Johnny Cash always did. Right. Penitentiaries. Right. B.B. King was doing something. Mm -hmm. He was doing the Walpole State Penitentiary, which is right next to the New England Stadium Okay. that the, that the Patriots were playing at. Mm -hmm. So we go down there, and I just assumed in the back of my mind that we'd be going backstage. Mm-hmm. So they grabbed B.B. King and his manager right away, and they grabbed the other four of us, another promotion guy and two sales guys, and we meet the, the warden at this mm -hmm. penitentiary, which looks so, you know, whatever the word would be when you see a penitentiary from outside, you go, oh my God, I don't want to go in there, you know, scary as can be. Right. And it was only six months after Attica, if everybody can remember, mm -hmm. in Attica in Buffalo where 21 people died. Yeah. Right? Pacino, and two guards sorry. died. Yeah, two, two guards died and 21 people died. Yeah. It was only six months after that uprising. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now we're at this penitentiary. Well, again, I thought be backstage wouldn't be a big deal. Mm -hmm. So the warden takes the four of us mm -hmm. and he walks us through all the cells, but they were empty. It was still eerie and scary, mm -hmm. but they were empty. Mm -hmm. And then we go to a little auditorium like you'd have in high school, mm -hmm. 800 seats, you know, and there's two doors. Mm -hmm. We go in the door and the last three rows were empty. Everything was filled. Mm -hmm with what we realized later was all the inmates. Mm -hmm. I'm still assuming that we're going backstage. We're not gonna be sitting with these inmates. So I'm walking down the aisle. My other three friends ducked into the row and I'm by myself and all of a sudden, all 800 guys get up, stand up and do this to me. And I don't know what it means exactly, but it scared me to death. I turned around and realized my friends didn't follow me down. I'm halfway down. I turn around, go back and sit down, shaking and scared, you know. And they're talking to a guy in front of me. This guy's got to be 75 years old. And they, I found out what they've been talking to him about. They made friends with this one guy. Mm -hmm. And his name was Eddie. I'll never forget it. And he says, I got there in time to hear him say, 
I just can't believe I'm in this penitentiary. All I did was rob two banks. Everybody else in here murdered people. Everybody, there's not one person here that didn't murder people. I'm the only person here that didn't murder someone. All right, so we're scared to death after about three songs, and then they send a girl out from, from uh, the, oh, the top, four, top 40 station then, but now it's a talk station. Forget the station, but they send a girl out to say, here's B.B. King, and she's got a mini skirt on, and she could have been a Playboy centerfold. She's gorgeous. And it's the last person you want to send out there. Because again, all these angry people get up there, you know, and they all have, you know, all the cigarettes rolled up and they're, they're giving her this and they didn't even hear what she had to say. They just, they just couldn't believe she's gorgeous. The four of us look at each other and say, we gotta get out of here. We can't, this is not gonna be good, you know. So we leave and we find our way back to the lobby and we waited for it to be over. Well, they have a um, jewelry thing. They're selling jewelry. And In so, a prison? Yeah, they have, in the lobby, they're selling stuff that the inmates made. Oh. And so I, I didn't even look at the stuff. I'm still, I'm still shaking. <laughs> One of the guys says, I want to buy this. This was made by this guy right here, it says. It's also another Eddie. Mm-hmm. This was made by Eddie DeSalvo. You know who Eddie DeSalvo was? I know that name, yes. Wait, I know that he was the Boston Strangler. Correct. Hello. So the guy says, I want to buy this by Eddie DeSalvo. This wow. ring or whatever it was, you know? Wow. And he says... So Eddie DeSalvo, he, he was, used to be in this prison? Used to be in this prison. He was in this room you were just in. He was probably sitting next to you. Oh my God. Okay, so we go back, my, my partner and I go back and we go to every sorority and fraternity for about 10 days. Our last day, we're going to Logan Airport and we're in just about into the tunnel and the radio station WRKO is a big top 40 station. We're listening to a song and they did something we found out they almost never ever did ever again or before. They cut the song and said, we have a news report. There's just been an uprising at Walpole State Penitentiary. <laughs> two guards have been grabbed. They found an arsenal of weapons, and they're holding these two guards. It could have been us. Holy shit. All right, that's my number one. Now, they didn't kill the guards, and they got out of it, so that. Okay. But the second one is really more, yeah. and that is that <laughs> when I mentioned that I was scared, too intimidated to be friends with our artists right. at see Records, mm-hmm. there was one artist I could not... There was just no way I could not be artist with, and that was Jim Croce that we mentioned before. Mm-hmm. He just became one of my best friends. Wow. He came here and saw this collection. I was living in a different place then, but it was only one room, not 18 rooms, but he came over and saw my collection. We went to lunch every time he was in L.A., and we just hit it off tremendously. <laughs> one time I was in Des Moines. Mm-hmm. Every Wednesday he would call me to see what his billboard chart numbers, because I'd get the numbers on Wednesday before the following Monday. Uh-huh. And he always wanted to find me, hoping that his numbers were good. Mm-hmm. And, but we talked, and you know, it was a friendship thing, but he also wanted to talk business. Mm-hmm. And one time I was in Des Moines, he goes, well, I'm in Fargo at Moorhead State Penitentiary. Why don't you get up here and hang out with us for dinner? You'll see my this show. another penitentiary story. No, no, no. <laughs> oh. Did I say penitentiary? I still, yeah. I still had it in my mind. Okay. I'm in Moorhead University. Okay. I said it wrong. And he said, I've got a show, you know, in six hours. Mm-hmm. If you can catch a flight, you know. So I called my boss. He said it was okay. So I had to catch up four. I, I drove from Des Moines to, to Omaha at over 90 miles an hour the whole way because I had to catch a four o'clock plane from Omaha. I got there, I didn't even go to the rental car place to return the car. I just left it in front on the, in front of the airlines, mm-hmm. ran in, ran to the gate, it was two minutes to four, slow down, slow down, place was canceled. There was a snowstorm where they came from and you, you know, now I had to catch a four hopper and I got to Bismarck for his last song, which was no big deal, mm-hmm. and we went to dinner afterwards and I took off the next morning. Well, about four months later, I'm in Mobile, Mobile Alabama at a station, WABB. And he finds me on a Wednesday. Where are you? I'm in Mobile. Yeah, your secretary gave me the number. Okay. Well, I'm in Louisiana. It's an hour and a half drive. Get over here right now. I 
called my boss. I said, is it okay to be with Jim again? Mm-hmm. He said, well, yes, but it's 4.30 our time. You gotta call me in one hour at 5.30 before you drive over there. Called him at 5.30. Steve, you can't, we just signed two new artists from Crosby, Stills, and Nash. We just signed Crosby, Nash. They're gonna be in Atlanta tonight, and we need a representative from the company to be there for a showcase they're doing. Mm-hmm. And kind of say hi, welcome to the label. Mm-hmm. Great. Called up Jim Croce. Can't be. He said, oh, I just kicked off. I have six seater tomorrow going to Natchez Doches. Oh, I know where this story's going. And I kicked off one of the guys, and you're going to be the sixth guy, but if you can't do it, you can't do it. You know, no, that's the place he died. The he died on that plane. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So that one was closer to home. I would have been on that plane. With Jim. Oh. Now, maybe something would have been different. Maybe it wouldn't have crashed. I don't know. But wow. I would have been on that plane. And that is insane. So I remember that day. Now, what was the final story you wanted me to tell now? Um, I wanted you to tell the Stevie Wonder story, but you said oh. that you had a few stories you wanted to tell along the well, way. Well, I'll tell one, one, one fun one. Okay. I, I like this one a lot. Um, when I was in college radio back in 69, 70 and doing all these interviews, mm-hmm. this girl, Tangi, that I knew at Electra, she called me one day and said, Steve, I... So far, by the way, I've passed all his tests. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Danny DeSalvo, well. I'm like really impressed that with myself. Good. That was good. That was good. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'll have to, I'll have to think of a tougher one. You're, no, you're, you're no. Too, you're too good. <laughs> Oh my God, the pressure's on. I gotta answer these questions right. Right. Okay, so um, she calls me up and she's with Electra. Mm -hmm. She's Steve, I I know you like the doors, you know, and you went to see them at the whiskey a few years ago, you know, and now they're bigger than ever. And they're playing the Forum. Uh, What year is this? This would be 70 or 71. Okay. And it was three months before he died, so. That one needs batteries, I think. (laughs) Oh, you got it. It was three months before he died, so whenever, I think he died in November of 71, so it must have been summer of 71. I could be off by a year, but mm-hmm. um, but he was the same age everybody else was. And Jimmy and Jim, yeah. Uh, he, he was the yeah. third one to die, yeah. Right. Okay, so by now, Jim Morrison's one of the biggest things in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's as big as the Beatles. He's huge, especially right. in West Coast. He was, mm-hmm. You went to a party, all they did was play the Doors albums over and over. They didn't play anything else. <laughs> and so I said, you know, I met him once for a second, but that would be nice to meet him. Oh, so, so I got invited to the forum to see him. Right. Secretary calls back the next day. It's a week later. Yeah. Form, the show's a week later. Uh-huh. She calls the next day. Says, yeah, I couldn't say anything yesterday because I didn't know if I could get an invite. But we're having a private, we're having a private party the night before the forum next Thursday, next Wednesday, and I got you an invite, so you can go. Great. So, are you a huge Doors fan? I, uh, on a ten scale, I was an eight. Okay. I was still a, probably a bigger fan of a few other groups, but the songs of theirs that I loved, I loved. Okay. Okay. So, I was pretty close to. I was probably a nine. Mm-hmm. Okay, so by now Jim Morrison's so big, I said, now it would be nice to do more than shake hands and get to talk to him for a little bit. So I said, Tanja, I'm there. And she said, yeah, you, you got to go by yourself. I can't get you plus one, but I got you four tickets for the forum. But I, for the party, just you. Okay. So I go there in my 1961 Chevy, and I get there. And, I, oh, and she said, it's going to be at a four-story house that Betty Davis just moved out of. Now, it's important that we remember it's a four-story house. Okay. Because why? I Somebody's opened, jumping off of something. No. Oh. I opened the door to the party, and it was like a Cheech and Chong movie. Smoke, marijuana <laughs> smoke. I couldn't see. I couldn't see ten feet. <laughs> and again, I'm not a marijuana smoker, and I didn't mind breathing it. And I didn't care that people did it. Right. But I said, you know, I gotta get somewhere else. So I see there's some stairs. I remember, oh, four story. Well, there's some stairs. Uh-huh. That's what made me think. Mm-hmm. It's a four story. Mm-hmm. So I start going up the stairs, and here is Jim Morrison walking down. I'm walking up. Now. Nowadays, if it was President Obama or mm-hmm. President Trump, mm-hmm. I couldn't care less. Hi, I'm Steve Resnick, and I, but back then I was intimidated. I, could, I didn't know what to say, what to do. Did, I just was walking past him. 
And on the stair stairway, he stops me. Kid, who are you? I'm Steve Resnick. What are you doing here? In that tone. Oh, well, um, your record company, Electra, invited me. Oh, what do you do? I'm the program director of KBLA. I didn't say college station. Program director of KBLA. Oh. Do you have a car? Yeah, I got a car. Oh, God. Yeah, me too. <laughs> he says, what kind of car? I said, 61 Chevy. He said, where's your car? I said, well, it's out the door and about a block and a half down on the street. I said, I'm going to be buying Jim Morrison drugs. Oh, you know? my God. So he says, I got a car. Do you have keys for your car? I said, well, yeah, I got keys for my car. He said, well, then you're going to need this. And he walked away. Can you read that? How are your eyes? I have my glasses. Okay. But it's dark. Wait, what does this say? It says... Doors. doors. It's got a date, which is the name of their next album. Se something 71. Yeah. 11, 26, 71. I think that was the name of his album that came out just before he died. But he gives me this. Yeah. And to this day, besides having his DNA in here, besides that, I have no idea whether they made 10 just for the group or they made 1,000. And, you know, I have no idea. But, but he gave it to that you. Was, he gave me that and said, you're going to need this. It's a keychain. And I have a car. Mm. So that was one of my favorites. That is just such a sweet story. Yeah. That's a sweet story. That was nice. I wouldn't expect that from Jim Morrison. Right. That's right. a sweet story. Yeah, so that was one of my favorites. But um, So yeah. he intimidated you first, and yeah. then he gifted you. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. The other one that I wanted to just real quickly mm -hmm. is that, for those of you who will come visit one day, mm -hmm. the collection at the museum is how, 18, how, 18 Steve, rooms. tell people, mm -hmm. if they do want to come visit, mm -hmm. how do people come visit? What do they do to, to, to get connected to well, you? Well, I'm half kidding because okay. it's not open to the public. Right. It's just for friends. I've had 28 record company presidents, and I've had people like Bill Medley, who I mentioned before, and Little Anthony, and, and Marvin Gaye, and Dick Clark, and Casey Kasem, and some Art LeBeau, and all these people have been over here, 28 record company presidents, which I might have already said. Mm -hmm. And um, Mick Fleetwood came over twice the last couple of years, and, and um, great songwriters, and just so many. And I love sharing with those kind of people. And I, I don't mind, I, sh I like sharing it with friends and other people like that, but if, if anybody ever wants to get a hold of you and, okay. and they're coming to LA and you know, I don't mind if, if I've got some time, I'll do it. I want to do a shout out to Rob Burnett, who is the reason, who is the person that got me yes. into the museum. Yep, Rob's the best. And uh, yeah, Rob's the best. I was partners with him for a couple of years with my newsletter called Ramp. Okay, so tell us, before you tell this story, tell mm -hmm. just the quick version of what Ramp is. Right. Well, remember I did record, uh, record company promotion. Mm -hmm. I was at ABC for seven years. I worked my way up to vice president there and worked with the, wow. one of the greatest of all time, Charlie Minor. For anybody who might not know Charlie Minor, there's been 300 E! True Hollywood stories and the first one they ever did. Mm -hmm. Everybody else was movie stars and TV stars. He right. was just a record company executive, but the best promotion man that ever lived. Wow. He was my partner at four record companies mm -hmm. and he was unfortunately murdered by a girl he dated six times that he broke up with 24 years ago. Wow. That's why the E! True Hollywood story. But he was the best promotion man ever, and he and I were partners in my final year at ABC Records, mm -hmm. where we had five hits in one year. Mm -hmm. We went to United Artists, where we worked closely with Kenny Rogers and, and uh, uh, Jay Giles mm -hmm. and Kim Carnes and uh, Betty Davis, Eyes with mm -hmm. Kim Carnes, and we just had a great couple of years there. Mm -hmm. Robert John, Sad Eyes. And then a year later, we both went back to A&M, where I had been 10 years ago, and he had been four years ago, not mm -hmm. at the same time. We didn't mm -hmm. even know each other. We both went back to A&M as vice presidents, mm -hmm. and uh, we had the time of our career with Supertramp and Janet Jackson and Brian Adams and 
sticks mm -hmm. and Amy Grant and gin blossoms and uh, split ends and on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. and, we had, and that was our greatest 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, after that, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do because it was, I could have stayed, I could have gone to Giant Records with him. Mm -hmm. He went to Irving Azos label. But instead, I went with Tom Noonan from Billboard magazine and we started a company that, and we did marketing for two years, which I didn't enjoy after doing promotion. Mm -hmm. And we were doing okay, but then we started doing a charts magazine mm -hmm. to because uh, BDS and Billboard just started this new monitoring system. Mm -hmm. And we didn't feel they were doing it right, so we, we tried to do it our way. And it was a, a huge success in every way except financial. Mm -hmm. We couldn't afford... That's the story of my life. There you go. <laughs> we couldn't afford the cost of the booklets that we had to send to every record store in America. And mm -hmm. back then there were 20,000 record stores mm -hmm. still in existence. How many are now? About four. Yeah. So uh, we did that, but when we couldn't make any money, all of a sudden the Gavin magazine offered me a job. Mm -hmm. And they were in business for 30-some years. And they were what's called a tip sheet. There were a lot of tip sheets. And they tipped record company, or radio stations off as to what records to play and not to play. That's why they were called a tip sheet. They tipped them off. And, okay, so what was the criteria of play this, don't play that? Well, there was lots and lots and lots of criteria. Okay. There was, there was jukebox to play. Mm -hmm. There was airplay. Mm -hmm. There was sales, word of mouth. Mm -hmm. All those things entered into it. Mm -hmm. um, you might have a record by... Fabian, mm -hmm. after he had a couple of stiffs, which means they weren't hit records, mm -hmm. but you liked him a lot. Mm -hmm. He's been to your station, he's done little showcases for you, mm -hmm. so you play his record, even though you really don't know if it's gonna be a good record. Right. There's lots and lots of reasons. I, I can give you, I only gave you four, I can give you a hundred reasons why to play a record, mm -hmm. and a hundred reasons not to play a record. Mm -hmm. And Paola into, entered into that, of course, as well, right. at the time. Mm -hmm. There's all these reasons. Um, you know, a program director's got two kids, and you buy them some, the kids something for Christmas, that might make the difference. Now. You go to a radio station, and he's going to add four records that week. He's got 30 records to add. Mm -hmm. He's got to pick four. Right. If your record is a bad record, not even close, it doesn't matter if he loves me. He's not going to play my record. Mm -hmm. If I've got a record by Janet Jackson called Rhythm Nation that he knows is going to be a smash, mm -hmm. it doesn't even matter if he likes me. He's going to play right. it. Right. It's those borderline records. Gosh, should I play that record? Maybe. It's almost Can you it's think of a borderline record, record that well, you pushed over the top? We had one. Mm -hmm. that my partner I mentioned, Charlie and I, mm -hmm. we had a record, and we didn't know whether to promote it or not, but mm -hmm. we had nothing else really to promote. We oh, let's go back and try that record again that we couldn't get in the airplay the first time. Mm -hmm. And we worked it, and the next thing we knew, it was number one in the nation, and it went number one only because it was a reggae record we didn't believe in. UB40, Red Red One. Jesus. If we'd have had a police record, if, uh -huh. we, if we'd have had a Brian Adams record. You wouldn't have done it. We wouldn't have been able to work this record. We would have had too many, but it was one of those few times we had uh, nothing else to work, mm. and we liked the manager a mm -hmm. lot. And we thought, you know what, it's not gonna be a hit record. You know, and there are times wow. where we were all wrong. Right. You know, and there's times where I've loved records mm -hmm. that didn't become hits. Mm -hmm. And I learned early on with Jimmy Buffett. That's how I first learned. Irving Azoff was the manager, mm -hmm. and he was a great manager. But I was intimidated by him as well, because he was already a big name with the Eagles and mm -hmm. all kinds of groups, and mm -hmm. so he had Jimmy Buffett. And so, he asked me one time, after we had a song called Come Monday, mm -hmm. which mid-charted, peaked mm -hmm. at 30. Mm -hmm. It was a fabulous record. Mm -hmm. But country stations would say, ah, it's a little too pop for us. Mm -hmm. And pop stations, ah, it's a little too country for us. Mm -hmm. It was in the middle. Mm -hmm. It should have been a hit record. We didn't bring it home. And I thought he, he as a manager, would be mad at me. And, and one day, I'll never forget him saying to me, he says, Steve, it doesn't matter what me as a manager thinks of my record or my artist. I mean, it does, but it sort of doesn't when it comes to having a hit record. 
It doesn't matter what you as an executive and record label thinks. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the A&R person who signed them and put out, decided mm-hmm. which record to put out. It doesn't matter what they in the long term thinks. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the radio guy thinks. All that matters is you get it played in the radio and the listeners, they're the only ones that matter. Mm-hmm. If they decide to buy it and play it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right. then it's a big record. Mm-hmm. So if you don't think The Candyman by Sammy Davis Jr. is a good record, mm-hmm. which I never did, mm-hmm. but it sold three million copies, mm-hmm. then it's a great record. Mm-hmm. There were people that laughed about Sugar Sugar being a silly, stupid bubblegum record. I would be one of those people. But if it sells two million, <laughs> yeah. would you like to be the person collecting the benefits I of that? I would. You know? I would. That's why I have no money. No. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so it really is in the case of the listener. Mm-hmm. So if a record gets played and doesn't sell and it doesn't get played, mm-hmm. it just wasn't a hit record. Okay, so get back to Ram. Because I'm okay. looking at the time. You have a thing to go. Okay, we'll do we 10 have to, more minutes. We have to get to ramp, and then I'll you've got to give me, you you give me the Stevie Wonder or whatever you're holding I'll, I'll get the ramp helicopter to oh. take me over there. Okay, good. Anytime. Okay, so when I'm at Gavin, mm-hmm. the Gavin magazine was not doing well. It was in its final days, and it was pretty close to going out of business. And they were trying new things. Mm-hmm. And my partner, Kevin Carter, and I were doing the Gavin and, and the guy named Dave Schoen. We were doing it but when he was leaving, and so Kevin and I were doing it together. And every week in the Gavin magazine, a mm-hmm. weekly, we would do a one story that he would write, mm-hmm. and I'd sell three or four ads. Mm-hmm. And that was what we did. Mm-hmm. Well, the new owner came from, from England. Mm-hmm. We didn't feel he knew the American market very well. Mm-hmm. But he said, let's try something new. How about a daily fax? There was no such thing as email yet. Right. Let's do a daily fax of the news of the day. What, what year is this? 98. Okay. And Kevin, the writer, my mm-hmm. partner, mm-hmm. still to this day, my mm-hmm. partner, he's the, he's the best. But he looked up at this guy, David, the mm-hmm. new manager, owner and said, you're saying that I got to write seven or eight stories a day when I used to write one a week? You got to be kidding. And I looked at him, David, mm-hmm. and I said, I got to sell three, four, five ads every day? <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> but back then there were 50 record companies. Mm-hmm. Today there's nine left. Right. There's some small ones, there's some good ones starting up, but back then there was Casablanca and there was mm-hmm. Geffen and there was all these record companies. It was a great time. Mm-hmm. And so I gave every one of these 50 companies a free ad for the first two weeks. And they, almost everybody loved it. Mm-hmm. And we hit big. Mm-hmm. And my partner being one of the great writers of all time, we hit big. And, and we, we were called Gavin Mail. Then we changed the name to Gmail, mm-hmm. which we forgot to copyright. <laughs> or I'd be in a, you know. A whole different world now. In a mansion in Man, what Guadalajara. You, you, you are in a mansion, but it's a different yeah, kind. Right. Yeah. So we did Gmail for four years, but Gavin finally went out of business. Mm-hmm. And Kevin and I moved over to Radio and Records, which was the biggest tip sheet of them all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we went over there, and they had a column in their newspaper, which used to be the first thing everybody read, but now it wasn't being read too much mm-hmm. because email finally hit, mm-hmm. and the news, by the time it got mailed to you, it was four days old. Right. So it was called Street Talk. So we called our newsletter Street Talk Daily. Mm-hmm. And it went out, now we, cha- we transitioned from fax to email. Mm-hmm. And it became very, very successful for seven years. Mm-hmm. And then Nielsen bought Hollywood Reporter, mm-hmm. Billboard, mm-hmm. and us, R&R. But two years later, Nielsen decided to close the doors at R&R. Mm-hmm. So my partner went off on her own. We renamed it Ramp, mm-hmm. Radio and Music Pros. So we've been doing it for, under three names, but for 21 years. Wow. And, uh, and how many people subscribe? Uh, there's about 5,000 radio stations and 2,000 VIPs. And so, okay, so it's radio stations and VIPs that are getting this. Right. And what, what is Ram telling them in, in a nutshell? It tells them the news of the day. What happened yesterday in the music business? What program directors got hired or fired? Mm-hmm. 
what new syndication shows there's going to be, um, if JLo got mobbed at an airport, if a radio signal fell, if the, if the, uh, the pole fell down and they were off the air for two days, or if there were floods and what the radio stations did, mm -hmm. or the charities that they do. Mm -hmm. um, so is radio still alive and well? Yes, you might get different answers from different people, you know, mm -hmm. but um, it's so different from what it was before. Back I'm a serious listener, that's all I listen yeah, to. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, people thought Sirius would take more of a dent out of terrestrial radio. Mm -hmm. And I don't know all the statistics, but I think terrestrial radio is doing, and Sirius is doing fine too, mm -hmm. you know, but terrestrial radio is, still has a lot, a lot of listeners, and when records become hits, the majority of the time they look at the radio stations as. Uh, their stepladder to, you know, Still? getting there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, that was a great explanation. Now, okay. um, now tell us a good story. Okay. In this museum that mm -hmm. many people will see one day and many people have seen over the years. We're going to try, before we go off the air, we're going to try and go downstairs and do the 45 thing. Uh, uh, before we, I continue, for those of you that are listening out there, if you think of a 45 between the years 1955 and 1974 that you would like Steve to find, we're going to go downstairs, and if, as long as we don't lose signal, Steve will find those. People give him, will name one between 1955 and 1974, and Steve will find it within about 25 seconds or so. Maybe. Oh, and maybe, and you know, this is not an exact art, mm -hmm. but he will give it a go. So uh, if you can think of, uh, um, maybe we'll take three songs if, if anybody has any suggestions of songs you'd like Steve to find. Okay. Right. But chances are we're not going to get a signal down there, but we'll try. We might not get a signal down there. Right. But anyway. In this museum of mine, if I may mm -hmm. brag to you guys just a little bit, you may. there's 18 rooms and there's about thousands and thousands of pieces of memorabilia. Some are matchbooks that aren't worth two cents, mm -hmm. and some are lighters and some are pads of paper with Whitney Houston's name on it. Uh, what are the, some of the most valuable things that you have? Well, or the most ex or the most special to you? Yeah, some of the most special things are my Led Zeppelin inflatable that you can see up there. I've got a shirt in the oldest room that he wore a year before he died with his blood on it, because oh. he had a nosebleed. Oh, stop. Yeah, and um, my ex-wife Mary uh, did the makeup, she's a makeup artist, mm -hmm. and did makeup for Frank Sinatra on and off for the last 15 years of his life, and she saved one of the powder puffs, she did his makeup. Oh. So I try to tell people that I claim to be maybe, maybe only one of the people in the world that has both Elvis's and Frank Sinatra's DNA, DNA in my ah. house. And Jim Morrison. So, and Jim Morrison. Yeah. Yeah, and a few others, but, but Sinatra and Elvis. Wow. You know. Wow. Um, so next time you come over here, you might see a little Elvis and a little Frank filing <laughs> records. You know, <laughs> clone them. They clone. Right. They, we do not clone alone. Anyway, yeah. But anyway, here's one of the, one of the, to answer your question about one of my favorite things. Okay. As you go through and see the thousands and thousands of pieces, there's. Tell us the yeah. 18 rooms. It, give us. Yeah. Give us a, Every a room quick has rundown. a different theme. Okay, so give us the rundown there's of what. There's room the for Elvis. There's room for the Stones. There's room for the Beatles. There's room for the 50s. One for the 60s. One for the 70s. One for the 80s. One for the 90s. Uh, there's um, Beach Boys. A Beach Boys um, and Prince. Some are smaller rooms than others. One for the Monkees. Um, it's not so much my favorite groups. It's mm -hmm. not so much who was more famous, mm -hmm. although that ha plays a little bit into it. Right. It's who do I have the most memorabilia? Stop. You know, I got a lot of Taylor Swift stuff, so she's got an area, but it's, wow. a, it's a shelf area. Uh huh. I got a lot of Adele stuff, but oh. not enough for a room. Okay. You know. So it depends on how much, you know. I'd love to have a Bob Dylan room, but I don't have that much Bob Dylan memorabilia. I see. You know, it depends. The piano behind us is one of my special things here in this room. Uh, a good friend of mine wrote Midnight Train to Georgia on that piano. Oh. Um, 
and it's a great, great story uh -huh. that, that he wrote when Lee Majors first met uh, Farrah Fawcett. Fawcett. She was trying to be an actress and she couldn't make it. Mm -hmm. She was getting like one cigar commercial once every three months, and she wanted to go back to yeah. Texas. Uh -huh. Yeah, the story's been out now, but but I, I no, played, I think I heard it from you, maybe. Oh, maybe so. Mm -hmm. I told that story maybe last time. I was playing racquetball with Jim Weatherly. He was an all-American football player. We played football together, semi-pro. And he told me the story one day after racquetball how he wrote the song for her about, because she- For her. For her, it was, it was for her. And it was called Midnight Plane to Houston. He wrote the song because she was falling in love with Lee Majors and he was living in Encino, but she didn't like living in LA except for because of him. She wanted to be with him. And so the father, who was I think a doctor in Beaumont who mm -hmm. had, had enough money, said, hey, there's this brand new thing, it's called the Red Eye. And if you take them, and the Red Eye, when they first started the Red Eye in the air, air, airplanes, they were mm -hmm. much cheaper. Uh huh. And she said, if you, take, if you take the Red Eye every Friday night and come back every Sunday night, come home for the weekends. And then you'll be with Lee out during the week. He was doing the Big Valley with Barbara Stanwyck then. He wasn't a $6 million man yet. Mm -hmm. But she was going back and forth. And Jimmy, oh, so, so Lee was driving her to the airport, LAX, the story I got. He was flying her there, on Friday, driving there on Friday nights, mm -hmm. coming home alone. Mm -hmm. Picking her up on Sundays, two in the morning, because the midnight plane carried him at two in the morning. Uh -huh. he, he'd pick her up, drive alone at midnight, pick her up, come home, and then he had to be on the set of the Big Valley at five in the morning. Mm -hmm. So he was getting no sleep. Mm -hmm. Finally, he told his friend Jimmy, you're going with me. So it was three going, two back, two going, and three back. He was never alone. Lee was never alone. Right. Jimmy got tired of doing it and wrote a song called Midnight Plane to Houston about a girl who couldn't make it in the big city. Some girl in the South, I think her name was Dorothy Moore, who had one hit, I'm not sure, it might have been somebody else, mm -hmm. recorded an R&B version of that country song. Mm -hmm. It was a country song that Jimmy did on one of his albums. And you'd never believe, it was a good song, but you'd never believe it could have been a hit record, especially rhythm. Right. But she recorded it. Mm -hmm. It was not a hit for her, but got played a little bit in the South. A year later, Gladys Knight comes into town to do a concert. She's in a limbo, hears it. Find out who that is. She calls Jim Weatherly. Can I record your song? And he says, yes, but not when they plan to use, it's not when they train to Georgia, because the, the first girl changed it. And she called Jimmy every day, can I record your song? Yes. Can I change it to Midnight Train to Georgia? He goes, why? Well, I'm from Georgia, and I got a lot of friends, they've never been on an airplane. Wow. And they've never been out of the state of Georgia, so. I you know, love it. So, uh, Gladys wanted to do the same thing, and it wound up being the biggest record of 1973. Don't you love how that happens? Okay, tell us the story. All right, so anyway, so in this museum, there's thousands and thousands of buttons and pins and, and backpacks and, and all these pieces of memorabilia, Eric Carmen telephones and things. And these were all made, some were spent good money on and some were 10 cents. Mm -hmm. I myself couldn't care less if, there, if it's a Brittany Houston uh, pool thing, you know, for the swimming pool. It, it just, it's, whatever it is, it is. Right. I just like having things right. and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so you put it all together, it's pretty valuable. Mm -hmm. Many of the items have no value, they're just little tiny things. But in my Beatles room, I have something that was given to me by someone, two, a couple of special things. Mm -hmm. One is, when they, when they gave the Beatles the, the label Apple, mm -hmm. they put together a, a big a poster framed with about 15 different Apple possible insignias. Mm -hmm. And I got the original one they made for that meeting. Wow. So that's good. That's but, very cool. But then I got, what I'm told there's only about seven of, these. And that's when Yoko and John, about nine months before he died, they mm -hmm. put together a jewelry company. Mm -hmm. And I got one of the samples. They only made seven or eight samples. What? And I got this sample. Oh my God. That they did. 
It's the it's the drawing of John. The, so he the signed part. every letter. Yeah. Wow. So that's kind of cool. What? That's very cool. Right. Oh my gosh. So mm. some things, mm. you know. And then there was an artist. I, I love this little piece. There was an artist. Um, I don't even know his name. What was it? He, he didn't make it too big. But what was his name? I've forgotten it now. I can't. Okay, check the other side. It's not there. He was on Capitol Records. Willie DeVille. Willie DeVille, I, yeah. He did, I have friends he did that okay. lived with Willie DeVille. Okay. That played with me, DeVille. Anyway, yeah. those of you from the 50s and 60s and those of you who watched the, the movies from those times look when when um, when when the TV stars got into, the, like like James Dean and all that, mm-hmm. and they had the switchblades, you know, they made, for, Capitol Records made a switchblade for him. And so I kind of like this one because if you take a look at it, you say, you know what, if you don't be careful today, I'm going to comb your hair. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, That's but I, I love all these little things. There's thousands around, you know, everywhere you look, there's thousands. There's a thousand t-shirts. And there's, there's all kinds of great stuff. There's amazing stuff here. Okay, so tell, before we go downstairs or try to go downstairs, tell your Stevie Wonder story because it's such a lovely story. Okay. There was a gentleman at Billboard. His name was Tom Noonan. Mm-hmm. He was a legend. I was lucky enough to work with two legends, Charlie Miner, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and Tom Noonan. Mm-hmm. Tom Noonan was a kid in... He's passed away now. Mm-hmm. He was older. He, he grew up in, he was born in Canada, but grew up in New York. And he worked at Yankee Stadium in, in the 30s. And uh, he went to college out of New York. But right after that, it was World War II. So he went into the war. Mm-hmm. But the first week he got into the service, we beat the Japanese and the Germans and the war was over. Mm-hmm. He still spent two years there, but he didn't have to see any action. Right. The war was over. Mm-hmm. When he got out, he didn't know what to do with his life, and he started selling Zenith radios in New York. Mm-hmm. And in 1949, he went to, to deliver a radio to some guy, and he worked at Billboard magazine. And the mm-hmm. guy says, I like you a lot. Do you want to work at Billboard? I need an intern. Mm-hmm. Tom, in 1949, went to work at Billboard magazine. It was the year that the 45 RPM was created or invented by RCA Records, six years before rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Tom worked as an intern. A couple years later, he got a full-time job. A couple years later, he was head of the charts. Mm-hmm. And it was only a top 30 back then. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, the Dinosaur and, and Frank Sinatra days. Mm-hmm. They only had a top 30. Nobody really cared too much about the charts. It wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. But Tom saw this thing coming called rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And he went to his bosses in the summer of 55 when he saw Chuck Berry Records and Little Richard Records just starting in the South. Mm-hmm. And a guy named Elvis Presley in the South who wasn't signed with RCA yet but with Sun Records. And he saw uh, Bill Haley with Rock Around the Clock and mm-hmm. a couple, just a couple of records that sounded like rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And he asked his boss to be created, could create a top 100 instead of a top 30. And they fought him for four months, and on November 17th, they allowed him to come out with the very first top 100. And he decided to put three of them out. And there was a top 100 for sales, top, uh, top 100 for three. You know, I always remember four things, but it was just three. So I'm not forget forget which one of the three it was. It was... Three of these four, sales, airplay, jukebox, and sheet music. Wow. It was three of those four, and I forget exactly okay. it was three, but he had three separate top 100s. Wow. And he did that for two and a half years until he realized, except for the sheet music one, they were pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. And so it was too much work. Mm-hmm. So he and a young guy, 14 years old, who started Sire Records later and found Madonna for the first time, a guy named Timor Stein, who's a good friend of mine, mm-hmm. He was a 14-year-old intern who ditched school and came in and was an intern for Tom Noonan. And together, they changed the three top 100s, combined them into what was called the Hot 100s. Mm-hmm. 
which became the most famous chart in the history of our world. Mm -hmm. And back in the 60s and 70s, during the heyday of rock and roll and the 45, you could go into a record store in Switzerland, in Sydney, uh, almost any place except Russia or China, uh -huh. in the world, uh -huh. and there would be a Hot 100 hanging from the wall. Wow. That's how big a deal the Hot 100 wow. that Tom created was. And in those years when Tom mm -hmm. was at Billboard magazine, he took the black charts, which were then called the race charts. Really? And he changed it to a name he came up with, Rhythm and Blues, mm -hmm. R&B. He invented the name R&B. Really? And the black artists Wait, what of that year time, was that that he invented? 55 or 6. Wow. The black artists that he knew, because mm -hmm. they were all coming in to see him, mm -hmm. and um, the DJs that came in, mm -hmm. said, no, no, the black artists liked the name black name Race Charts. And he met with a lot of them, and they did like the name Race Charts, but he didn't like it. He didn't think it sounded good, didn't sound right, and he changed it to R&B. Wow. The country charts were then called Country and Western. Mm -hmm. And the few people he talked to in Nashville mm -hmm. didn't like the Western part. Mm -hmm. So he changed it to country. I actually remember when it was called Country Western. I, yeah. I mean, I was a baby, but... Yeah, he renamed it to okay. country. Mm -hmm. Top 100. There were always new records coming up so fast back then. During those days with Tom Jones and with um, Chad and Jeremy and the millions of, of, of Smokey Robinson records, and every week there were 15 great new records that were coming right. the charts. That's why records back then, you can go all the way to four on the charts in the 60s. Mm -hmm. Number four, or number three, even number one, and in eight weeks, you, if you were Herman Sherman, you'd be gone. Because there were there were fifteen new records every week coming on the charts. Right. Nowadays there's four or five. Right. Back then there were fifteen. Mm -hmm. There were so many incredible great records from all over the world mm -hmm. and all over the, the pop domain that Although I remember songs like Hey Jude and stuff that would like be number one for like There were a few exceptions, but even forever. But even Hey Jude yeah. would probably be twenty weeks. Mm -hmm. Whereas a Mariah Carey record five years ago, six years ago, a year ago would be thirty nine weeks. Wow. Being on chart forever. Back then, there were too many great records and knocking people right. off. Right. So, yeah, some records changed. You know, mm -hmm. Every now and then, a record would be number one for eight weeks, like Mac the Knife, mm -hmm. but it wasn't often. Mm -hmm. There were just too many great records coming out. Mm -hmm. When you think about back then, the artists mm -hmm. who never had number one, Chuck Berry never had number one. Is that true? Little they Richard never had number one. Really? Bruce Springsteen never had number one. Bob Dylan never had number one. He had two number twos. Never had well, number one. What were his two number twos? Mm, I don't remember exactly okay. which ones they were, but... Um, my favorite Blowing one, in the Wind I'm thinking well Blowing in the Wind he, he never put out that was his record he wrote for Peter Paul and Mary well it was on his album yeah but he, yeah, he, he, didn't, he didn't single it okay. it was never his big hit single right okay um, did he have single I never oh, had a Bob Dylan oh, single yeah. I only had oh, albums Like a Rolling Stone was his first one and that went to two that was his first one I couldn't think of both of them that went to two mm -hmm. um, and Subterranean Homesick Blues I love that song yeah or Just Like a Woman yeah. anyway yeah yeah um, but anyway, um, um, so there were, Johnny Cash never had number one. Um, wow. When I said Chuck Berry never had number one, mm -hmm. Chuck Berry never had number one until he had a stupid gimmick song. Uh, My Dingling. That went to one. Of course. Nothing else did. Mm -hmm. And there were other great artists that never had a number one record because Elvis would be in there half a year. The Beatles later on would be in there half a year. Right. If you take seven artists, if I can remember who the seven are, it's Elvis, Diana Ross and the Supremes, Stevie Wonder, um, the Rolling Stones, no. Rolling Stones, mm -hmm. Bee Gees, mm -hmm. and there's two more I'm not Did thinking Did you say of. the Beatles already? I think I already said the Beatles. Okay. But there were seven artists mm -hmm. who had 13% of all the number one records wow. in, those, in those first 30 years. Wow. 
So it was tough for other artists. Mm -hmm. Even the Beach Boys only had about five for four. Really? They didn't didn't have. They, they peaked at two and three and five all the time. Mm -hmm. One of the, the biggest group America ever had. But mm -hmm. still, they it was tough to get into the number one slot. Mm -hmm. You know, back then. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I bring that up. Oh, and Creedence Clearwater. Five of their first six records that they had in America, in the world, peaked at two. They were the record breakers for never making number one. Wow. Peaked at two. How would you like to go in that marketing meeting every week? Oh, we're not number one again. But, <laughs> but still. And there were many record companies who hated having a number two or a number 11 record. At A&M, when we went to marketing meetings, for me or Charlie, they would say to you, you guys, you know. Because that's your failure if it's number two or 11? You got a number two record, you can't get to number one? You know, you got a number 11 record, you can't at least make a number top 10? You know, that wow. was the thing that we had to do. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yet I always say, you know what? I'll take a number two record every time. Yeah. Every time. Not bad. Right. Yeah. Uh, if you were the second best movie every year, if you had this directed the second best movie of the year every year, you know, wouldn't you be a happy person? Yeah, I would. You know. Get to Stevie Wonder. Okay, so Stevie Wonder. Yeah. All right. Stevie Wonder, now again, I interviewed him when I was uh, 19, he was 17. Right. In a hotel room. But years and years later, he would never remember me. You know, he might remember me because, you know, when you lose a sight, you have, your, your you, other senses are heightened. heightened. Yeah. So he, maybe he would have remembered, you know, I don't know. But, okay, so uh, Tom Noonan, my friend at mm -hmm. Billboard, he goes to, he, he does Billboard until 1968. Mm -hmm. And then Columbia Records likes him so much they hire him to be the head of promotion, which he's never done promotion. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to, to give this statistic, if I may. Yeah. He gets to Columbia Records and he realizes, there's a guy named Mitch Miller there, who had a TV show called Sing Along with Mitch. I remember Sing Along with okay. Mitch. And Mitch Miller hated rock and roll. And this is now 1968. I what he looked like. He was a really weird looking right. dude. Exactly. Yeah. He was the head of a &R, mm -hmm. which meant he Did decided he what... He was? Mitch Miller was? He decided what artists got to sign. Wow. And all they had back then was Johnny Cash and Barbara Streisand and... Her sister sang in my living room yesterday. Really? Rosalind Kine. Wow. Mm -hmm. And a couple other of soft artists, mm -hmm. right? And so they had no rock and roll. And it was the 12th year of rock and roll. It started in 56, now it's 68. Mm -hmm. And they've got no rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And Columbia Records is dying. Mm -hmm. Tom gets there and he goes, I made a mistake. I came to a label where it's a rock and roll world and we got no rock and roll. He didn't pay any attention to what he got there. Mm -hmm. But Mitch Miller left the company mm -hmm. and the record company president after 30 years retires mm -hmm. and new president becomes a guy who was a lawyer for Columbia at the time by the name of Clive Davis. <laughs> he liked Tom, mm -hmm. kept Tom on as head of promotion and Clive Davis and the A&R people he appointed in their first two and a half years and no record company ever. I defy anybody to tell me any record company that's ever signed artists like this in, in a two and a half year period. Big Brother and the Holding Company which of course became mm -hmm. Janis Joplin. Mm -hmm. Bob Dylan, Billy Joe Royal, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, The Buckinghams, The Birds, The Chambers Brothers, Time Jeez. Will Come Today, Chad and Jeremy with five hits, mm -hmm. Chicago, which were first Chicago Transit Authority, then mm -hmm. Chicago, who's still together today, yes. and the second biggest group in America Ramon, behind the Beach Boys. Somebody I know is playing percussion for them right now. There you go. Mm -hmm. Circle, you might not know them, but they had two hits. Uh, Gary Puckett and Union Gap, The Hardin Trio, which was country, but they had a couple of pop hits too. Okay. No, it's one, really. Mark Lindsay and Paul Revere and the Raiders. O.C. Smith and Little Green Apples. Paul Revere and the Raiders with five huge hits. Peaches and Her, mm -hmm. United and all that stuff. Pozo Single Singers, which was country, but they had a couple of pop hits too. Santana and Simon and Garfunkel. Jesus Christ. Can you even believe that no. that's possible? No. It just, so Tom's there for what two taste? years. 
What? What taste? Yeah. Tom's there for two years. Date Records says, you know what? You're, we're giving you your own label. They give him a label, date, and he signs Peaches and Herb. Mm-hmm. And then he gets a call from a guy from Detroit who he's never been to Detroit in his life, a guy named Barry Gordy, who's pretty big already with Motown. Mm-hmm. Tom, we want you to come to Motown and be the head of marketing. Tom goes there. He is there for three days. He opens up his drawers in his office. There's nothing there except one check for Stevie Wonder for $1. A few days later, he meets Stevie Wonder and they become friends. A few days later, Barry Gordy comes in and says, Tom, tomorrow you need to rent a van. You need to go to Detroit Airport. You need to pick up these five kids. I know you're just getting started and I take, take, hate to take you away from your business, but you got to go to Detroit Airport and pick up these five kids uh, from Gary, Indiana, who Diana, meaning Diana Ross, mm-hmm. wants me to sign. I've heard their records. I'm not going to sign them. But for Diana, who's the biggest artist we have, and... And, and also his... Woman on the side. Wasn't, I was trying to think, how do I say that? <laughs> yeah. He's a woman yeah. on the side. How yes. do I say that? Okay. He wants to do this for Diana, but he only wants to bring, her, bring them in. He doesn't want to sign them. So he tells Tom to go to the Detroit airport in a van to pick up their equipment and everything mm-hmm. uh, to pick up the group called the Jackson Five. Michael and his four brothers, and they're, they're just on this little plane. First time they've ever been on an airplane, and they're at the airport shaking. Their, their equipment's three hours late, so Tom's got to sit with them in a, in a little store, mm-hmm. and a little, little Coke place, and, and drink some Cokes, and try to get them to talk. None of them would talk. They're still scared from the flight. Their equipment's three hours later, late. They finally get it. They get put them in the van. They go to the boathouse, they called it, for Barry Gordy. He listens to them do three songs and totally changed his mind. Not because of Diana. Fell in love with them. Mm-hmm. Signed him. The rest was history with the Jackson 5. Mm-hmm. So a few days later, Tom is in his office, and Barry Gordy comes in and says, uh, how's everything going? You know, you're still new, and thanks so much for what you did two days ago, and that was really something. You know, I'll never forget that you were the guy that, that got him to talk and open up and all mm-hmm. that. And he said, Tom, um, uh, how's it going with Stevie Wonder, his new project? And he said, well, pretty good. I've met with Stevie a few times, and I like his new album. And I told Stevie that Stevie wanted to go into the marketing meeting on th- next Thursday and tell your creative guy, your album cover guy, your salesperson, your marketing, every, you know, the, the 12 mm-hmm. people in the meeting, mm-hmm. head of promotion, head of publicity, mm-hmm. tell each of them what he's expecting out from the album. Mm-hmm. And Barry said, oh, no, no, you misunderstand. No artist, not, not David Ruffin, not even Diana, um, not Martha and the Vandellas, no artist ever goes into the marketing meeting. That's not for the artist. Mm-hmm. They don't ever go into a TV can't go. Mm-hmm. Smokey goes because he's head of A&R. But he, nobody else can move him. Mm-hmm. He goes, oh my God. And then Barry changes his mind. He says, you know what? You did such a great job with mm-hmm. the Jackson 5. You can bring him into the meeting, but do not tell any other artists ever. And you tell Steve this is a secret to keep for all time because we can't open the doors. Mm-hmm. You know. Okay, now, Tom had told me about this story, but what he didn't tell me was I met Stevie Wonder a couple years ago. Mm-hmm at a funeral mm-hmm. for a former president of Motown. Mm-hmm. And in this meeting, I mean, in this uh, funeral, there's 1,200 people there, including all these major artists. Lionel Richie's about to do the eulogy. Mm-hmm. And I had Smokey Robinson two s- seats away from me, mm-hmm. and I've met him once or twice, and there's Stevie Wonder sitting in the front row next, next to me, uh, in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I only met him that one time I did the interview, so I you know, didn't know him at all. Mm-hmm. Didn't think he'd ever remember me. And so, the two priests at this funeral say, okay, before we talk about other things, for the next three minutes, we're not going to talk at all. 
It was very religious. I want everybody here to meet somebody, say hello to somebody in your row that you don't know and make a new friend for three minutes. And then we'll get back to business. Monkey Robbins, Stevie Wonder, <laughs> flip a coin. I walk over to Stevie Wonder. Now, before I tell you, I got to tell you this one little story. Was I did meet him one other time, but I didn't get to talk to him really. Tom Doonan had a UCLA extension class for 12 years, mm -hmm. throughout the 80s and early 90s. Mm -hmm. And he was supposed to have 35 people sign up to his class about how to get into the music business. Mm -hmm. Every year he had over 130 people sign up, and they let him have it in one of these big showroom whatever those, those big stadium rooms are mm -hmm. at UCLA, and he'd mm -hmm. have all these people, mm -hmm. and they had 130 people. And so every year he'd have one person from a radio station for the 10 weeks come and speak, a marketing person, a promotion person. We've been talking for over two hours. I know, okay. I know. Okay. Are we okay on time? Uh, okay. I, won't, I won't make my showcase, that's okay. No, 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 uh, uh, well, but, all right. Do so we have to close up? Soon, finish, okay. but tell us the story. I'll finish in two minutes. Okay. Okay, so Tom, at, at, <laughs> at this UCLA class, mm -hmm. every week has somebody, the eighth week of, he would bring everybody over to A&M where I would give a, a, a full tour of all these 130 people to the A&M soundstage, which used to be Charlie Chaplin Studios. Mm -hmm. In the ninth week, he'd have a manager of, of a major group, and in the 10th week, he'd have an artist. Mm -hmm. And over those 12 years, one time he had Rod Stewart, one time he had Barry Gibb, wow. one time he had Rod Stewart, I'm not saying Rod Stewart, he had uh, Bob Seger. Mm -hmm. He was a big deal, and he'd get these people to come. Wow. He had Madonna come one time, mm -hmm. you know. Wow. And but he never told the the, 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 the students who it would be. Mm -hmm. He would surprise them. Mm -hmm. So he's in an airport at LAX, mm -hmm. and he's in one of those American Airlines three-story escalators, and he's at the top. And Tom never realized that you don't just shout out when you think of something. Mm -hmm. And he saw way at the bottom with 80 people in the middle, Stevie Wonder. He hadn't seen him in 10 years. And Tom just. Stevie! Yells out with all these people, you know. And Stevie goes, Tom Noonan, is that you, Tom Noonan? <laughs> he remembered him after he hadn't seen him in 10 years. Wow. They talked for 10 minutes, and then Stevie says, oh, you know, what, what time is it to his manager? we got to catch our plane. Tom, uh, let me hug you, and let me tell you that of all the representatives at record labels I ever met, there was no one that could hold a candle to you. Mm -hmm. What you did for my career, and just knowing you, you were the best marketing person I ever knew. Wow. And he hugged him. And he said, if there's anything I can ever do for you. So Tom said, well, mm -hmm. I teach a class at UCLA. And if you're in town in two weeks, uh -huh. you could speak at my class at UCLA. But only if you're in town. I know you have homes in LA and Detroit. If you're in Detroit, it's not worth it. I'll get somebody. Uh -huh. He said, no, I'm there. I'm there. To make a long story short, he wound up being in Detroit, flying in with his seven band members from Detroit, all paid for, first class, with all the equipment. Stevie paid. Stevie paid for everything, without telling Tom. Mm -hmm. The manager called me and I had to set it up with UCLA to where we would fake it, like he wasn't gonna make it at the last minute. Instead, they put all this equipment in this room next to him where they had a, where they had a, had a curtain, mm -hmm. so they could fake it. And so I was the guy that had to go out and see if the limo was there, you know, but I, I knew what was gonna happen. And so every time I came back, Tom would go, like, well, Tom always spoke to the class for the first hour. Yeah, 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 is he coming? No, nothing look good. So Tom was really mad, because he could've got somebody else. Right. And so then, all of a sudden, the UCLA guy came in, and they set up the fire alarm in that, in that, in that classroom. Tom said, what's going on? The UCLA guy says, it's a fire drill, but you don't have to go outside. Everybody goes to the next room. <laughs> <laughs> Such okay. a great story. So they go to the next room. You know, Tom's really mad about everything. 
yeah. that. And then, so Tom starts speaking to the class again, knowing that Stevie's not going to make it. Yeah. And then the UCLA guy lowers the lights before he lowers the, can- the, the, uh, the curtains. And so Tom says, now what? Now what's wrong? And the lights go down, the curtains open, and there's Stevie Wonder with his eight-piece band, and they do an hour of his greatest hits. It gives uh. me chills. Right. Okay, so now, back to the funeral. I go over and talk to Stevie Wonder, and I said, Stevie, my name is also Steve. Steve Resnick, how are you doing? I didn't tell him I interviewed him once. I might have remembered, but I just I only had three minutes. So I said, I just wanted to say hi, and I just wanted to tell you that our good friend Tom Noonan went to his grave last year with a smile on his face because of what you did for him at UCLA. And by the way, seven to eight was Tom talking, eight to 10 was the class, two hours, with the artist, or whoever spoke that week. Mm-hmm. He stayed till one in the morning, Stevie, and spoke to every person, okay? So I said, what you did for Tom Noonan put a smile on Tom's grave when he passed away last mm-hmm. year. And Stevie started crying, and he hugged me. And he's a big guy, and he hugged me really hard. And he said, Tom Noonan was the greatest guy that ever lived uh, in the record business. He said, do you know what he did for me when, I got to, when he got to Motown? And I said, well, going into the marketing meeting? So I knew about that, but I didn't know the details. He said, do you know the details of what he did? I said, no. He said, he told me the same story that I already knew. Mm-hmm. And he said, the night before, we were supposed to go in the meeting at 10 o'clock in the morning on Thursday. Tom went out to Macy's and bought 15 cologne, different bottles of cologne, different, different type, different, different companies. And that morning, he put a label on every, every, every jar, whatever you call that, mm-hmm. tube, mm-hmm. and he gave it to each person in that room. This is Barry Gordy, and he sprayed it. So before he did that, before he gave him each a bottle, he says, Dee, that'll be Barry Gordy. Take a different bottle. That'll be the marketing person. That'll be Stevie Wonder. That'll be the girl that does publicity. And then he gave the bottle to everybody. Put on a lot of cologne. He went, what? Put on, your name's on there. Put a lot of cologne on and then go in the meeting. And none of them knew even Stevie was coming. So a few minutes later, ten, he waited until 10 minutes after everybody was in there. Tom walked Stevie in there. And Tom walked around the room. So Joe, my album cover, once again, he walked up to all these people by, by smelling them. Oh, my God. As if you could see. Oh, my God. Penny, Penny, tell me what you're going to do with my album cover. Sam, how about the marketing and, the, and the, all the one-stops? What, how are we going to get records in there? And Barry, what do you think we should tell the publicity? He knew everybody by their smell. Wow. As if he could see. Wow. And Stevie Wonder told me that story. Wow. Anyway, so... To end the whole story, I said, Stevie, you know, I've told you about my museum, that I've got this rock and roll museum. Tom gave me something of yours. The first day he got there, you never showed you, there was a check there for $1 in his drawer. He said, what do you mean? Yeah, there's a, I, and he gave it to me for my museum. He should have given it to you, but he gave it to me. And I said, one of the stupidest things I've ever said in my entire life, I could have killed myself. And once I started saying it, it was almost as bad as when I interviewed Led Zeppelin. I knew I was making a mistake. <laughs> I said, I didn't know how to end the conversation. Yeah. And I knew the three minutes was about over. Right. So I said, Stevie, I, I know you haven't made an album now in about 12 years. And I just want you to know, if times are tough, <laughs> I want you to call me. I've got a check for you. I will FedEx this check over to you for a dollar. And I said, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done and said in my life. He turned around thinking it was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. He had eight bodyguards there. Listen to this, guys. Listen to this, guys. He told him the story. That's how I ended. But that's my Stevie Wonder story. That's Steve, your stories are fantastic. You are amazing. You are an encyclopedia of rock and roll. Has anybody su- said a suggestion of a, of a single, Pete? Uh, they did, but I don't know if it'll work because we're going to have to unplug the mic and remember what happened the last two times. Why don't we do a part two next time when we Okay, so you know what? Yeah. We, yeah. So we, and I still, we might try to, I still might try to 
hit the showcase. Yeah, go hit your showcase. So I don't know if it's going to work. So we'll, we'll, we'll do a part two and we'll, we'll find a way to have like a remote uh, internet come with us. I think you can, you can get an extender like a, kind of thing. Yeah, we can get like a thing. We'll get we, a thing. We'll get, we'll get a, a thing. We'll get a thing. Steve, thank you so much for doing this. You're such a delight. I love your stories. Pete, thanks so much. We didn't get to talk to you much tonight. I'm sorry. Much. It's all good. But um, for all of you... will be doing part two as well. I will. And Uncle Don George from Cleveland was watching tonight. Perfect. Oh, sweet. And I want to say hi to my future wife. I didn't mention her name, Oni. I love my girlfriend, Oni, who's uh, in the next room right now. But uh, I want to mention her name. Beautiful. That's very sweet. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you all for tuning in. And um, we'll be back next week. I'm, oh, Alvino Bennett. Okay, D Alvino's been plays drums with Dave Mason forever. Right. And so Alvino will be in the living room next week and uh, we'll be pre-celebrating the 4th of July. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time. Thank you.